Oh, hello, everybody, and welcome back. You're listening to Directors Club Podcast. This is part two of our 2019 year-end spectacular. Here's our top ten films. Patrick, guess what? I'm ready. Are we back? We are. Oh, whoa. Hello. Oh. All right. Hi. Hi. Patrick, what is your number 10 film of 2019? We should probably talk our top 10 films of the year. My number 10 film of 2019. I shouldn't clap so prematurely. Or, yeah, we're not doing this over Skype. That's when you want to clap. Okay. Um, my number 10 film of 2019 is Dark Waters by oh, Todd Haynes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. You liked absolutely. it more. I really struggled between this and Marriage Story, and then I ended up just being more impressed with Dark Waters. Now, I went into this with low expectations, so mine, that might, mine were high. might have something to do with it, because like Todd Haynes doing a respectable like issue-driven film about it's like it just sounded like promised land to me it was just like this is not what i care about this is not what i like about todd haynes movies okay yes of course giant chemical companies are bad like duh yes. you know like these kinds of movies i've seen before you know i've aaron brockovich was a long time ago <laughs> um civil action so the thing about yeah. this movie is that this is this is what happens when someone who actually cares about making a real movie care also cares about the material, which doesn't happen very often because it's very easy to fall into the rhythms of this, what's supposed to happen. And that's when you get promised land. That's when you get like Gus Van Zandt doing oh, wow. whatever. I forgot all about that. Yeah. One. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the kind of movie yeah. this is, but instead Todd Haynes has such an attention to every detail and he tells a comprehensive story around the margins that I feel like was probably, it's probably like a classic example of like, Oh, this is a director who took on a studio project and then ended up making it a little more subversive. Whereas this film is not just about the fact that the DuPont Chemical Company uh, is has poisoned America for decades and continues to. This is also not just about the fact that the chemical industry has been asked to regulate itself, which of course no industry ever will because they're only going to look after the profit margins. Of this course. is a film about how literally every single aspect of America operates this way. This is a, this is like, this is like an infection in the blood to, to use uh, uh, imagery of the film itself. Like that's just, that is what America is. So um, fueled by capitalist structures. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a film that it opens up like a horror film, like the colors of it. It looks creepy when you see the farmer who has kept all of the diseased organs from his horses and stuff it is just a scene from a horror movie there's, there's the scene where the one horse is uh, or i guess the one cow is sort of going a little crazy and it's like it is filmed to scare the audience it it it's is a creepy filmed, moment yeah it makes you uncomfortable in your skin when you realize how many scratched up uh teflon pans you have in your cabinet oh, yeah. you know like it is a movie designed to make you feel uncomfortable and he he so here here's the way here's the reason these movies exist the reason these movies exist is because when you tie your movie to an important issue then people think your movie is important and then you tell them a story about a little guy going up against the big guy and then that is inspirational. So people go to a movie, they feel like they've seen something substantial, whether or not they have, because it's about an important issue. They have a 
good feelings though when they leave. They're not going to leave being like, well, that depressed me. I'm mad. I saw it. I'm not going to tell my friends to see it. And then you get to have someone give a big indignant speech and then that is the Oscar reel. And then like hopefully Mark Ruffalo gets nominated for an Oscar. Like that's the reason this whole genre of movie exists from Silkwood on is because it's marketable. Sure. Um, that is not why Dark Water, or I don't, it might, it's, it is why Dark Waters exists. That is not what Todd Haynes cares about in this movie. Todd Haynes cares about making this real and making you see it for a much larger thing than it is. So it starts off like a horror movie, but in the margins of everything, it is emphasizing the poverty of the people is uh, hurting. And not just the poverty of the people, but how the structures of class work in that yeah. town where the people want to defend the people who are poisoning them because that's where their money is coming from. It's looking at the structures of why people are impoverished and how underclasses turn on each other. And, mm -hmm. you know, like, obviously Parasite. It's a similar, sure, sure, sure. similar thing. It's also about the scene... Here's the important thing. The important thing is it does not give you false hope that, well, any little, any voice can make a difference and it, any little guy can take on the big guy and change the world. This is yeah, not- I didn't a, feel inspired by the end of no, this movie. No, <laughs> this is not about a lawyer who just wanted to do the right thing. This is about someone who literally, the only reason he can do anything at all is because he was already part of the system that was fucking everybody over. Right. He is literally just- a guy, he's just like a part of a machine that got destabilized and started working against the machine's interests. And that's the only reason any of this exists. So that's not an inspirational idea. That's not an Aaron Brockovich, any tough, any, you know, right thinking, tough talking single mom can change the world. Like this is, okay, these are, this is what even needs, this is the bar that needs to be cleared. At that point, also, what does he even achieve? It's like, Every 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 step he takes is minimalized, and everything is a. It's not the right word I'm looking for, but uh, minimized. And every um, it 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 tries to be very honest about it being an insurmountable problem in the way that these kinds of movies almost never are. Mm -hmm. On the margins, you have his wife. These characters in these movies are fucking terrible. Always, you watch The Insider, you're like, wow, what a great movie. But every once in a while, you see a scene where the wife's like, our house isn't as big as it used to be. Why don't you stop? And you're just like, well, I don't care about this family. This movie's not about this family. This movie is about this guy. There's always that character. Right. JFK, similar thing. And yeah. like the wives of these characters, they're always just obstacles. They're always just like. They're always need... like waving their finger at the yeah, husband. What are you doing? But but the audience can't empathize with them because mm -hmm. the audience hasn't spent time with home. The audience hasn't realized like, Oh, she had to waste an entire day doing this thing. Cause he wasn't around to pick her up in soccer practice or whatever. Like the audience doesn't give a shit about any of that. This movie gives a shit about that. Anne Hathaway in this movie is very good. And this movie is very much about the sacrifice. She was made the weaker part of the movie, but maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I mean the, the, the reason this movie isn't higher on my list is because it is hindered by the fact that it still has to be this kind of movie. Yeah. This is just the, best version of this movie I've seen mm. is the thing, or at least in a long time. So like this movie is very much about how her sacrifice is minimized, not just by outside forces who, you know, there's like an 80 yard line that's sexist about women lawyers or whatever, but also by hit by Mark Ruffalo's character. Like, like this movie understands the sacrifice she made in far as not having a career anymore mm -hmm. to raise the family so he can be the hero. Like they, this movie understands that's fucked up in a way none of these movies do because none of these yeah. movies actually care about the characters. They just care about hitting the marks they need to hit. 
all down the line, this movie does that. There's a scene where he's at some chemical like luncheon or whatever for the industry, and you realize like the only black characters you see in this fucking movie are the waiters. And it's like a sea of white faces, and then there's just like five black waiters serving everyone. Like oh, he yeah. takes the time to do that. You know, he has this ongoing story about um, I forget the name of the actor. He's in Midsummer as well. He's in The Good Place. He plays right. Chidi. Uh, he was in um, Patterson. Uh, he's you know. This is a movie that takes place over the course of like a decade or longer. And he is sort of a peer of Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo gets made partner at the beginning of the movie. Years and years and years later, despite them being ostensibly on the same level, he finally gets made. And then like later on and like towards the end of the movie, it's like 12 years have passed. And he's still talking to the woman who has was part of them at the beginning being like, you know, you were passed up for partner this time, but it won't happen again next time. Like... Uh, Todd Haynes is overwhelmingly concerned with the idea that this is not how DuPont operates. Being mad at DuPont, looking at DuPont and being like, you're greedy. And then like, like that's not helpful. You need to understand on a wider scale how yeah. this operates on every level of every system in America. That's how America was built. It's like this movie does an amazing job at that. And the fact that it has to sort of still be a, sort of Oscar bait issues movie is the reason why, you know, it can't get as angry as it should be. It still ends on a somewhat hopeful note. You know, it can't be quite as nihilistic as maybe. Well, he's still working hard. Be. You know, that, that, that lawyer's still working hard to this day. Right. No, exactly. And, but it's, but these things have already happened. Like there's yeah. no, there's um, no turning back. From but that. even like, and look at little, Flint. Okay. okay so little loud. things, you see a photograph of a baby that had a birth defect and like, it is a shock moment. It is a moment where you in the audience, you're looking at a photo that looks like a real birth defect and you go, oh, oh God, oh, this is terrible, oh. And then Todd Haynes realizes that you shouldn't look at people with physical deformities and demonize them and make them out to be monsters. Like that's not a good tactic, even though he just used it. So he goes back and makes sure that exact character is in the movie as an adult. And it's that same person uh, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. at the gas station. And that's someone who actually been through this and he's just listening to the radio. He's filling up this car with gas. He wait, you know, like well, he has a lot of humanity and a lot of empathy for there his is, characters. It's so comprehensively thoughtful in mm -hmm. a way these movies never are. And so part of my, me being impressed might've just been that I went in expecting promised land and I got instead dark waters, but I think this movie is excellent. So that's my number 10. Yeah. I'm going to watch it again. Cause I love Todd Haynes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> number 10 is a movie that I hadn't anticipated making my top 10. Uh, and I don't know, it's not the, usually the type of movie that does, but for me, it's really the, uh, I guess I would say the Kelly Reichardt film of the year, even though it's not directed by Kelly Reichardt, it's directed by Tom Quinn. It's a film called Colwell that, um, how did I hear about this? I heard about this, I think, through Steve Procopi's review, and um, he talked, I was playing at Facets, I think it played at Facets for like a week or two. And um, character actor Kevin J. O'Connor is in it, and he appeared there. Uh, but it's available to rent uh, on VOD, I believe. And it stars uh, Karen Allen, who we don't see that much these days of. Which is a shame. I know. And I, I, was, I was not prepared. I mean, she's always been very consistent, very reliable. And, you know, obviously we, we know her from Raiders and Starman and everything. And she brings her own warmth and humanity to every role. But uh, this one really, really um, struck me. And uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of plot, and it runs under 80 minutes, but it's really just, again, like a Kelly Reichardt film where uh, Karen Allen plays um, 
a, a very, you know, uh, homebodied woman. She's, you know, kind of introverted and she works at a post office in a small town that is, is basically runs adjacent to her home. So it's like the, the, the post office is connected to her home. She can go for like from one door to, to the other and she's home. Um, so she runs this, this post office pretty much all by herself. And she has a morning routine and uh, sticks to it. And then of course the corporate guys come in and say, guess what? We need to close several locations and yours happens to be one of them. Uh, and so this is what makes this like the, a very interesting post office is the fact that people like go there just to have coffee and hang out and socialize. And because it's such a small rural town, they're just, you know, like regular townsfolk who just want to go there, not just to get their mail or not just to mail a package, but to have a connection with one another. Um, so the small, the small town sort of rallies together because they want to save the, the business and uh, it's up to sort of, you know, Karen Allen's character. She plays Nora that, you know, she wants to decide should, is, is this worth saving or is it time for me to move on because I'm in my sixties and maybe I should just retire because that's what they're offering to her. They're basically like saying, well, you could transfer to another location, but it's only accessible by bus and you don't have a car. So, you know, it's, it's really just like this, you know, really pragmatic, practical decision that she has to make about, well, I could retire. They're offering me a retirement package, or I could transfer and keep working because I, this job is my life. This is what I do every day. I don't want to break up my routine. And uh, so it's basically just about, you know, the internal struggle of that um, alongside uh, just living a lonely kind of isolated life, but being okay with that. And that's kind of what I really liked about it. It wasn't like, oh, look at this poor old lonely woman. It was more of just like, there's a calm about that. There's a centeredness. There's an acceptance of that. Uh, so again, another movie about aging seems to be another theme this year. But um, yeah, it's, you know, and there's also this really interesting character that sort of fluidly shows up and it's hard to know exactly who she is, but I mean, she's, I guess, a drifter, but she also could be the younger version of Nora. And that's kind of left for the audience to decide. And so interpret. there's the suggestion of possible like magical realism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's not like explicit. It's, 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 it's hard to like decide really in the end. That's kind of another reason why I want to watch it because like, is she essentially having a conversation with her younger self, which would make it an even more interesting movie. Um, and like I said, Kevin J. O'Connor plays a, a fellow postal. Well, he's a driver who kind of goes from, from place to place. And they have this really nice friendship and there's no like, oh, let's see if they get together romantic, you know, uh, chemistry of any kind. It's just like they're friends and they like to talk and they have coffee together. And there's just a real warmth and compassion to this whole film. And it's, and it's just, you're in, you're out. But also, uh, you know, Karen Allen, you know, she has some moments in this that I, I, I was not prepared to, you know, experience where she breaks down and she's trying to decide who she wants to be at this, uh, you know, tough time and vulnerable age. But uh, yeah, it's again, it's a very simple story, very quiet, very subdued. And um, I loved it. I just thought it was a remarkable piece of work from a director that I don't know too much about. So when I'm, so when you, you start talking about it, you were saying like, it's not the kind of movie that makes your top 10. I'm wondering like, what makes it, what kind I mean, of it's other... just so, it's so small. Like it's okay. so, you know, 
I mean, I'm not saying like every movie has to be the Irishman or something. Oh, no, no. But, but I'm like, it reminds me of a movie like you love Kelly Reichard. Yeah, like yeah, Columbus yeah. was in your. I guess it's just because I haven't seen other lists of any kind. Oh, like, sure. You know, okay. Most people. I don't know if it's just they haven't seen it or they have a muted response to it or they just shrug it off or whatever. But um, it's definitely a, a really special film that I hope people can seek out. And, and, and especially for Karen Allen. She's just really remarkable in this. And uh, yeah, Colwell. Number 10 of 2019. Is that a, did that get a commercial release this year? Or is that? Well, technically I think it just played facets and it's on a VOD right now. Okay, cool. Please check it out, people. How about you, Brad? What's number 10 on your list? Well, we're going to need to really shift gears from what you guys have been talking about because my number 10 is Avengers Endgame. What? I know, huh? But it was all right. It, yeah, I thought it was a little, <laughs> I thought it was better than all right. And First of all, I, I think because uh, the MCU is such a uh, massive commercial entity that it doesn't get sometimes the critical uh, accolades it should just as far as their track record. You've got 23 films in the course of 10 years, none of them terrible. That's not true. Okay, Thor I, 2 is the worst uh, big budget movie I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Noted. Uh, I, I do agree that that is the least of them, and I would say it's mediocre. And I think there's a few of them that are mediocre, and then I think there's a, a bunch of them that are, are just excellent. And I, I put this one in that category, just like the its predecessor. It's you know part of a story. It's not going to make much sense if you haven't seen Infinity War or some of the other ones beforehand. But what impressed me about this was <coughs> how much of a not standard action film it was. Hmm. It, it's told in, in three parts, and there's almost no action in, in the first part. It's very much dealing with the after effects of uh, half the population being decimated in the last film. And we spend time with these characters dealing with grief, dealing with the idea of how to move on. And of course, they're doing that in a, in a popcorn movie way, not in the way that you know a, a serious uh, quote-unquote movie would. But it still really is something that, that draws you in and makes everything else ha that happens in the movie resonate a lot more. And then when you get in, into part two and the, the, the plot goes, you go into uh, one of my favorite uh, subgenres. Time travel the, heist. The time travel stuff. I just, I'm a sucker for time oh, yeah. travel. Well, That's, me too. Yeah. That just works for me. And it makes up its own time travel rules. And I was kind of like, ah, more power to you. And, and you know, and, and it's kind of a, a good contrast with uh, – with Rise of Skywalker and kind of the right way to do fan service versus the wrong way to do fan service because here you do get to go back into some earlier films but because it's it's done with a wink and and a uh, a sense of fun and it's you know it, it works as plot elements when we do revisit some earlier films it's a lot of fun and doesn't come off as something that's just gratuitous and then when you, you get towards the end, you get some of the most massive uh, epic battle scenes uh, that Hollywood has given us since Lord of the Rings. And I, yeah, I mean, so I, th I, I feel like it delivers on all those levels. And, you know, 
when so many action films are just about spectacle, are just about, you know, who's going to shoot who, who's going to blow up what and, and that stuff, to have, to, to have a, a film like this really, really hit home on characters and, and that you can uh, relate to and appreciate and, and have gotten to know over the course of years, I thought it was just a, a wonderful, fun experience. Patrick? I'm not getting into a debate about this. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. I'm going to say, this is what I'm doing for 2020. And I encourage everyone listening. It's your choice, obviously. But I encourage everyone listening to do this as well. Every time we watch a Disney movie this year, let's donate $10 somewhere good. Let's counteract the awful, awful thing we are doing by consuming Disney content by... Like, think of something that would be affected by white supremacy or the military-industrial complex, all things Disney actively sort of uh, engages with in these Marvel movies. If we watch one this year, let's donate $10 to, like, IRC or, you know, something negatively affected by the insanely terrible corporation that is Disney. That's what I'm doing this year. They have a new Star Wars movie that looks interesting, and I see it. I'll donate $10. I mean, granted, it's easy for me to say because I'm... I'm just not that interested in these movies, but I think that is going forward. What we should probably be doing is counteracting our bad choices. Yeah. Huzzah on that because as much as I enjoy the, the, the artistic end of it. Yeah. They're creating a, a monopoly that is really scary. That as well. It is, it is scary. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, I, I, and I've subscribed kind of, to Disney Plus for yeah. free right now, but I, I'm not even actively using. It. It's, it's really. It's, it's kind of like when when I'm, I, I drive around and and think about oh god, all the stores are closing down, everything because sure. because everyone's using Amazon and and so there's no independent bookstores and I feel bad about it, and then I go home and buy stuff on Amazon. Yeah. So like <laughs> yeah, I saw we like, stream stuff on Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Um, on not Saturday, I guess Friday. On Friday, I saw uh, 1917, and then I donated $10 to Doctors Without Borders because I just, again, like I already mentioned, like I feel gross watching war movies and enjoying them. <laughs> so going forward, okay. that's what I'll say is let's, if, let's, let's try to do some active good uh, when we do things that, uh, whatever. I'm, I don't want to get into a debate about the Avengers. I'm <laughs> glad people like these movies. I do not. But um, that's your number I 10. thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a little better than The Joker. Um, which you did as well. So, so we're gonna read some more lists. Yeah, I think so. That sounds cool. We just got one in like seconds ago in my email, and I just added it right now. All right, cool. But uh, the next one we're gonna read is from Regina Lynn, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So Regina Lynn only sent in seven movies. Uh, the light on un- unranked list. Uh, the Lighthouse. Um, Isadora's Children, which is a um, film that played at the Chicago Independent or International Film Festival. It's like a triptych, three different stories of these different women who are engaging with a uh, 1923 piece of dance called Mother. Um, sounded really interesting. I don't know if it's going to get a wider release or not, but it sounded cool. Uh, Parasite, Us, The Vast of Night, which I know got picked up by Amazon, so I think that will get oh, I want to see that a release this year. But uh, let me just say. Uh, Steven Spielberg-esque Twilight Zone mm. um, movie. Like, it's, it sounds like it's the sort of thing that will be nerd bait. And so just look out for the title, The Vast of Night. You'll probably be hearing more about it later. Um, Twilight Zone meets Pontypool is what they said. Um, and then The Farewell. So that was uh, Regina Lynn's list. Jim? 
Yeah, um, we have one from Valerie Richardson, a name that I've seen over the years, devoted listener since episode 10. What was episode 10, Jim? Holy crap. Do I actually know this? I bet you do. I'm looking in your eyes. I bet it's in there. Sam Raimi, I want to say. All right. Why not? Number 10 is Transit, a film that I, I, I should have rewatched in time to see if I loved it as much as I thought I did because I'd seen it like a year ago. Um, number nine is Atlantics, a very interesting film, which is on Netflix. Number eight is Marriage Story. Number seven is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number six is High Life. Number five is Uncut Gems. Number four, oh, ooh, it's a tie between Knives Out and Parasite. Number three is Under the Silver Lake. Number two is The Lighthouse. And number one is Patrick's favorite movie of the year, Midsummer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, Brad, I just realized that um, I added this to the list well knowing that... Um, I just got this via email. Okay. I added it to the Google Doc, and I'm like, oh, wait, Brad doesn't have access to the Google Doc. This is from... <laughs> okay. Just read this. Well, hand Brad a phone. To your is, phone, now I do. This is from Matt Gamble, host of the High and Low Brow podcast. Uh, and you can hear him on the De Palma episode as well as the Richard Franklin episode. And hey, Matt. Well, here is your list. At number 10, Good Boys. Number 9, Knives Out. Number 8, Midsummer. Number 7, Us. Six, Hustlers. Five, The Nightingale. Four, Dolomite is my name. Three, Ready or Not. Two, Fast Color. And at one, John Wick 3. Actually, it's called John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. That, too. But it's pretty good. <laughs> I wouldn't put it number one, but it's pretty good. I have I, never I always seen have... a John Wick movie. Whoa. No, I need to. I know the third one has horses, so oh. you know it's the best movie. Of yeah, the and dogs that like kick ass. Oh yeah, there, there was good dogs too. Those good, good dogs. Do- uh, that's my least favorite part of that movie, but those are some good good dogs. Yeah. All right, my number nine film. What tw- is it of twenty nineteen? When we talk about now, I was going to do a gym intro. It's us by Jordan Peele. It's us. We're we're on. We're the best. Uh, number twenty we're number nine. Okay. It's me, you, everyone listening. Nice, thank you. All right, us by Jordan Peele. So, Very good film. To get the negative parts out of the way, like this is a movie that is a mess as an <laughs> allegory, and I think that the same is true of Get Out. I'm kind of like, I'm totally fine with that just being Jordan Peele's thing that he swings really hard and doesn't really always connect. <laughs> um, you know, he might hit a. It, he might hit a foul ball, but like the sound it makes is so incredible. I don't care because the thing about this movie that is makes it more interesting to me than Get Out, even though Get Out may be better film. It's, it's, it's hard for me to say. The thing that makes this more interesting is that as I was sitting there in the theater, despite this being a movie where Jordan Peele is a screenwriter and he has all of his writing sort of history up to this point has been comedy and there's a lot of good sort of comedy best practices of like you set up a gag in the very beginning and then like once the audience forgotten it bring it up and then that's a good surprise like Mm -hmm. those things apply to screenplays as well and he kind of despite the fact this is a very surreal out there kind of a movie he follows those things he'll set up you know a device he'll set up the thing the kid's playing with that's supposed to start a fire in the first scene and then finally you see it at the end you know like he 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 has a very tight screenwriting approach that absolutely does not coalesce with a super surreal, irrational nightmare sort of a premise like us has. Um, whereas if this movie was sort of just sort of more vague and ambiguous, 
I would have liked it more. It would have felt more like a nightmare. Whereas when you watch it now, you like spend the whole ass being like, so wait, are the rabbits a metaphor for? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Like it's so literal that you can't help it. But yeah, towards the end, I'm like, wait a second. Despite this approach, the thing that this movie does that Get Out does not do is that every single scene I had no idea what was going to happen next. And honestly, I watch a ton of horror movies. That basically never happens. You usually either have a movie, like here are the best case scenarios. One is you have a movie that hits all of the beats you want it to hit well. You know, a ready or not. There's nothing surprising about the movie ready or not. It's just satisfying because it does the most dangerous game thing, in my opinion, well. You know, Or you do a movie where you don't really care what happens next because the story isn't the thing. You're just there for the audio-visual sort of experience. Um, That would be... I I would probably say something like The Crescent uh, is a movie I loved, a very good horror movie that it's like... It's not that it's a cleverly written movie. It's just that the story and the characters are so besides the point. Mm -hmm. Um, Us is a movie where you really care about the characters, where you enjoy following the story. But like... Every next scene, I was like, wait, where are we now? Like, uh, once, like, the reveal, spoiler, the reveal of the, there's other doppelgangers that the hideout, because at some point, you know, you're still looking at this movie, you're still trying to come up with the metaphor. You can look at the doppelgangers as being a sort of a guilt about being a successful upper middle class black family. And then there's this lower class black family to remind them that just because they think they've integrated into society doesn't mean that they as a race, you know, like that's what you think the movie is. And so then there's the reveal that the, the white family also has doppelgangers and it's like, oh, oh, yeah, this we is all do. Wait, the whole world? Like what is happening? And then like this whole movie. The government used them to control us. It is such a delight to see a well-made horror movie and that, you know, has to be said too, like he is good at setting up a scare. He's good at staging the violence. He is good at, um, levity when it's scary. Levity, yeah. yeah he knows when really to hit funny. levity. He yeah. know, like there are all of these things. He just makes really, really good horror movies, and the fact that they're not also perfect allegories is like you complain about that. You know, I I do because I'm that guy. I'm gonna complain <laughs> whenever I have a complaint. But like, but like you're not seeing the force for like what a gift, <laughs> what a gift oh, Jordan yeah. Peele is. No, he is for sure. And uh, so I really loved us. Um, I really loved watching it. I loved all the performances, um, especially uh, Lupita uh, Nyong'o again. Uh, yeah, you're I right. never heard the word spoken. Lupita Nyong'o. Okay, Nyong'o. Um, she is amazing in, in both her roles. I absolutely love, uh, I forget the actor who plays uh, her husband, but he is, he's great. He is so endearing and adorable. <laughs> There's a thing, it's a lost art. Um, I think it's more so now. I think it's come back in style with like Mike Flanagan, Mike Flanagan, a sort of a big influential horror filmmaker who, uh, cares about his characters a lot. Um, but for a while, the approach would always be like, well, we're here to watch them die, so we might as well make them the kind of people you root to die. And that actually, I think, is a hindrance in most cases uh, to actually wanting to follow a story and what's happening. If you just, like, oh, every character is an asshole and, like, Cooley got his head chopped off, but I sure wish the first 45 minutes weren't a slog. Like, this movie felt like Poltergeist to me, which is a great, great horror movie where the beginning sets up such an amazing family dynamic that everything that happens has way more effect because you're emotionally invested oh, yeah. in their lives. Um, I I really had such a great time. And what's funny is the first time I saw this movie, it was in a crowded theater. Were you there with us, me and Gabe? No. Okay, it was me and uh, Gabe, uh, our friend Gabe Powers of uh, the Genre Grinder podcast. 
he came into town. Oh, oh, it was Tyler Foster, our mutual friend. Oh, right, yeah. So we all went to see this opening weekend. It was a packed house, sold out. Um, the scene, the first scene where the doppelgangers arrived, that little shot of them walking down the driveway that was in the trailer, there were kids who got up, ran out of their seats, out of theirs. It's the sort of thing like you read like, oh yeah, that's what they did in Alien when the chestburster happened. Kids, people were running out of theaters and it always sounds like embellished nonsense. I just saw the, it happen. Wow. So wow. the first time I saw this movie, I was like, wow, that was a really scary horror movie. It was just the sight of them standing out there. That it was me. when they started coming oh, towards sure. them. Yeah, yeah. And just that sort of sudden, you know, lurching, like herky-jerky kind of movement and stuff that would just made the kids run out. It was a bunch of teenage kids, which is the best possible audience for a horror movie. They're all screaming. Um, second time I saw this movie, it was at home <coughs> with Regina. Uh, I was just watching the Blu-ray and I was obviously wasn't as scary the second time, but it was way funnier. And I was like, oh, like there's all these jokes I wasn't getting where like the motor on the boat that he bought wasn't working. And then the doppelganger has to like lurch over to it and start slapping it. Like <laughs> there's so many, there's so many little details in this movie that are so much fun. Oh yeah, he's great with that stuff. Um, the fact that like, yeah, the third act and or the, the kind of final moments, they're kind of spectacular looking, but they don't carry a lot of meaning like, I can't complain too much because I just love this movie so much. So that's my number nine, Us. Did you like Us, Fred? So much so that it is also my number nine. Hey! Yeah, let's just go right over to Brad. Let's just go right over yeah, to Brad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our divergence <laughs> on number 10 is now, we're now back in sync. Absolutely. At, at number nine. And, and I would echo everything you, you said. I'll... I think I'll just talk about some of the ways the movie is so good on little details. Mm -hmm. The opening was so effective, particularly uh, the scene uh, where the little girl goes, uh, runs so away good, from her family so and goes into the, uh, the, not a fun house, but what a uh, kind of, yeah, a, it's is like it a, a fun house? It's like a fun yeah, house. Sure, it's sure. connected mm -hmm. to the boardwalk. Yeah. House right. But, but, but the yeah. way that was shot and framed, I'm like, oh boy. This we're we're in good hands. This, this guy knows how to do it. To do some filmmaking, and it looks way better mm -hmm. than Get Out did. Yeah, I like this better than Get Out. Yeah, and uh, despite the fact it makes sense that yeah, this that's, uh, that's what I struggle that with. this gigantic set of tunnels would be <laughs> everywhere, and that everybody's doubles would have would know where they are and be right under them at all times, and that's okay. Because if everything else is working like gangbusters, having like just one thing where you just need to take a leap of faith for me is, is not going to be a, a problem. I also like uh, little details about how the doubles mimic their originals, like uh, the little boy who is always uh, wearing a mask in, in his real life is scarred in the same area as, as the double. And... And, and then, like you said, uh, Lapita Nyong'o, uh, her performance, her double performance just holds everything together. It, it works as horror. It makes you think. It kind of fits in thematically with uh, movies like, uh, like Joker and Parasite uh, as far as the, the idea of this, you know, the, the high and the low as far as class goes. And yeah, I, I loved it. I think Jordan Peele is one of those, if his name is on it, I'm going to see it. The other exciting thing about this movie is that it also seems like it had kind of a low budget. So like mm -hmm. you kind of get the feeling that it's like, even if he's no longer the, the taste of, you know, he's no longer 
the taste of everyone and like people get annoyed or like he can probably just keep making these kinds of movies at yeah. this level forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, like I look forward to his career and I'm like, number one, it's like, all right, please don't get sucked into like making a big budget something or whatever, where you lose your voice the way, like what was the guy who did um, district nine? Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Or, or like, uh, who was the guy who did um, uh, moon? Oh, David D- Bowie. D- Duncan Jones. Yeah. Duncan Jones. So there's like, there's this like thing where it's like, okay, as long as he doesn't get sucked up into that, <laughs> like, all right, you have a bigger budget, but now you have to do these concerns. If he can, yeah. make, he can make these weird, quirky horror movies forever, I'd watch them forever. I agree. You know who else? Whose movies I would watch forever? Whose? It's a guy named Martin Scorsese. Says he? That name rings a bell. Yeah. He's a good director. Oh, Marty. I just yeah. know him as Marty. Marty. We're so close. Yeah, I know. You guys text each other back and forth. Yeah. About how much you love Marvel movies. Um, <clears throat> is this among his absolute best that I will actively rewatch the way I do with a lot of Scorsese movies? Probably not. Probably not. Maybe that's why it's kind of low on my, on my top 10. But um, did it work as I was watching it? Absolutely. I, I definitely see the criticisms that you have uh, and I don't disagree. Maybe they just didn't bother me as much, but uh, I, I guess the, the CGI, especially with the eyes was really off putting like Robert De Niro's eyes just looked wrong. I think part of the problem is that he's not just an old actor. He's Robert De Niro. So we already know what he yeah, looked yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder how this would have played if they did cast people to play the younger roles. I really do. I, it's something that I think about and would it make her a stronger film? Um, it's, I think it's more like, like, like that choice is just an interesting experiment to see on display rather than it being a hundred percent effective and working. But I think what it does subverting my expectations about what a Scorsese mob movie usually is kind of surprised me uh, making the violence really random and kind of muted at times. And, you know, like there's not a lot of score. There's very few pop hits sprinkled throughout, just like a few here and there. And I really did think uh, De Niro gave a great performance, especially when he has to make that phone call uh, late in the film. And uh, I, I, I like seeing a quieter, subdued Joe Pesci here. But yeah, I, I can't deny like yeah, the de-aging is jarring to experience and something that, you know, I watched it on the big screen watched it at home and definitely noticed it both times and kind of went, I don't know if that was the right choice, but I'm willing to overlook it because pretty much everything else for me works. Um, I will say it was better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be hilarious. And I did laugh a lot when I first saw Joe Pesci, but I got got used to it pretty quick as well. I mean, I wasn't bothered by the de-aging. I did notice it basically in the first scenes where where you see everybody de-aged and, so I noted it. I'm saying, okay, yes. And then I just forgot about it. Then the film you kind of get lost in the story, me in, and yeah. I, I didn't really care about the DH yeah. anymore. I mean, when Ru- when when Russell refers to Frank as kid, I don't know. I was just <laughs> like, that's the Nero looks like he's fifty. I don't know. I can't see him yeah. as a kid. Uh, I got this kid for you. Uh, but no, I mean, like I, I, you know, the three and a half hours, much like Wolf of Wall Street, flew by. The last act of this movie really got to me. What, what, you know, what it says about death and aging and isolation again, and just like the inevitability of it. And, 
you know, uh, like how much agency, how much moral choice, how much say do we have in our lives? And, you know, when we're sort of programmed in a way that we are to do this, you know, in the case of Frank, to do a job that completely strips him of his, of his humanity and what does that mean for his identity? I think all that's really powerful. But just, you know, even on a scene-to-scene basis and seeing all these great actors uh, pop up, um, even Ray Romano has a small part and he's enjoyable. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I, I, I would agree that, you know, Anna Paquin just does what she can with her face <laughs> and, and it's, she probably could have been given a lot more. And even in the scene where late in the film where, you know, he comes to the bank where she works, I think there should have been more there. I think there should have been more vocal, you know, confrontation or some, some sort of catharsis or something between the two of them. It's just mostly like, I don't approve of you. I know what you're doing. I'm not even saying it. It just is what it is. And a lot of people are accepting of that. And I think that more could have been done. So that's probably, you know, a strike against it. Strangely enough for a, for a three and a half hour film, it probably should have been a little longer. It could have been, I guess. Yeah. Because that was the scene there. there, Basically the Anna Paquin thing, I think didn't work because there was a scene missing. Mm. You, you went straight from the, the little girl establishing her, uh, her character and her relationship with her father to Anna Paquin having already processed everything and not reacting and not really speaking. And somewhere there needed to be a scene where Anna Paquin uh, establishes herself as the grown-up version of the little girl and then establishes uh, what her conflict is with her father. I, yeah, or, that would have helped. I feel like the real problem is that they retrofit this onto a Scorsese crime epic where the thing about a Scorsese crime epic is he is obsessed with all of the details. He obsessed with process. He is obsessed with like the things that are weird and stick out and are funny about people who are operating outside the law and sort of just are left to their own devices to come up with these structures and stuff. Like the you could make a hundred minute movie that tells this story, but you would have to make it only from her perspective. You know, you wouldn't have yeah, all this yeah. stuff about Jimmy Hoffa. The only thing about Jimmy Hoffa that would be relevant would be her relationship with him. You know, like there's a way they can do this if they just completely abandon the thing that makes this super marketable. Sure. <laughs> like yeah, makes, yeah, yeah. This, they, they, they just have to abandon the super sexy long line of, you know, the guy, the guy who made Casino is back, you know? <laughs> right. And I, I, again, like, I think a lot of people expect that Scorsese in this world, in this realm, and I kind of like that he didn't give us that. It was something different, something quieter, something more reflective. Uh, very similar to what he did with Silence. It's just kind of like uh, deep in thought about, you know, where he is and where he's going. And it's almost like Scorsese's greatest hits, but dialed down in a very satisfying way. It's kind of like a summation of all his work contained here. But I don't think it's a full-out masterpiece either. I just I just think, you know, for, for, for a Scorsese movie, again, it's it's compelling. It's interesting. Uh, the dynamic between Hoffa and Frank Sheeran is a, is really a dynamic relationship. I think it's a really g- good one. And so I think it brings a lot to the table, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. The Irishman, number nine of 2019, here on my list on Director's Club Podcast. A little. Give me a little. little beep. There we go. Oh. That's it. That's number nine I was done. Ho- I was hoping that was like... The listeners a, a, are going to love that. They saw... <laughs> 
you know, that was that was nice. Thank you, Patrick. Do you want to read some lists? That felt good. Um, or you want to go to number eight? What do you think? I'll go to wait. my number eight. Okay, why don't you do that? I was talking about how much I loved that us. I couldn't tell what was going to happen next okay. um, as we wiggle our fingers at each other. And uh, <laughs> that is, to me, the chief appeal of Knives Out. Knives Out is a lot of fun by Ryan Johnson. It's my number eight. It is maybe some of the most fun I had in a theater. I mean, I'll, the, I had some more fun. I'll talk about those. And yeah, we had some fun. Higher up. But um, it is... You go in and you are already excited because the thing that Ryan Johnson does is set up and subvert expectations. All of his movies are like that. Brick, maybe a little, like Brick, the the whole existence of it is sort of a subversion, but there's not like within the movie he pulls the rug out from under you. It sort of stays the kind of thing it is the whole mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. But you talk about Brothers Bloom. It's like, oh, it's going to be a con man movie. It's like, oh, actually, I got something else going on here. Yeah, he does. And you, you see Looper, and you're like, okay, cool. Space, time, travel, paradox. It's like, well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that changes gears. We got some other stuff planned. And then it's like, Last Jedi. All right, the next exciting chapter in the Star Wars saga. And it's like, well, all those things you, you thought you knew about Star Wars, <laughs> I got some opinions about those. And th- that's his whole career, is he loves to surprise the audience it's all it's like borderline pathological how he does this so you go into a whodunit and you go this is the exact guy i want to see make a whodunit the only person i want to i thought when i first heard see make this movie more is i have for years and years and years always wanted uh wes anderson to do like a poirot adaptation or something some like Mm. english you know old house whodunit mystery or whatever but like that's a good call that's but ryan johnson that's like been the, the fantasy in my head or whatever. But Ryan Johnson is like, yes, this is exactly the kind of movie that this guy should be making. So you go sure. in wanting to keep guessing who the murderer is. And then we're going to spoil Knives Out. About 30 minutes in, something insane happens that totally changes how you think of the movie, which is they just show them. They just do a super lengthy flashback where they just show unambiguously how the guy died. I know it's a I was vertigo like, trick. I was like, "Wait a minute, why? I want to be. I want to. I want to do the guessing game." Uh, I mean, I was just so. Imp- I was just so but impressed by the audacity because, yeah, that I was just yeah. like, I just had a big dumb grin on my face the whole time when I realized they weren't cutting out of it, and they would the way it was shot. It's like, oh, this isn't subjective. This isn't a. This isn't a lie. This is uh-huh, actually uh-huh. what's happening. Um, <laughs> Very good. I love the whole cast. Is great. It's a really really good ensemble. So it's so much fun being taken around on it. I love that suddenly are placed in the hands of like, oh, I hope the murderer doesn't get caught. (laughs) Like you just absolutely change hands on what you thought you wanted Uh to happen. Um, And then seeing sort of uh, Daniel Craig circle around her and playing dumb and not really realizing uh, exactly what he's up to. And uh, just the way the family... Uh, sort of reveals their true colors, you know, bit by bit as like the will is read and everything. Like you're constantly watching this movie just going like, wow, okay, and then what? How are they going to get out of it? What? Oh God. And so <laughs> I think this is a movie that is like flawed in some big ways. I think the way the movie is set up it is meant to be an allegory of our times about like a divided America and about um, sort of, the house itself is a metaphor for America and where like 
the family is talking about it as if it's like their heritage, but they bought it in the seventies. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like you motherfuckers haven't been here that long. Um, like there's that it does enough work to make you view it as an allegory. And then when you view it as an allegory, it's like, Oh, this doesn't where she inherits because it was given to her by like the thoughtful billion. Like, how does that, of what, what is like, this doesn't make a genuine surprise. What it feels like is this is an Obama era movie. This feels like the, a response to, we have a black president. Now we can't, you know, like the time has come to turn our backs on the white supremacy that the country was founded on. And like, it feels like if this came out in 2009, instead of 2019, it would be like, wow, this is really a movie for our times. Obviously, that changed certain details about, you know, the internet and, you know, the alt-right, whatever. But like that, but watching it in 2019, you're like, this is not, you're not really hitting the marks here. And that's fine because it's so much fun in every other place. It's it's similar thing to us, except I think this movie, its joys are a little more sophisticated and a little more um, rare. Like I feel... I have seen scary horror movies like us, you know, I've seen movies about doppelgangers. I've seen, I, I go to a horror movie and I get scared. I'm delighted because it doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. Whereas like no one makes this kind of movie anymore. And when they do, it's some BBC PBS like stuffy <laughs> thing where the whole point is let's take a look at, you know, this car from the thirties, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like it's all about the production value and it's all about obsessing over nostalgia in the past. And like, it's all about like these are literary adaptations, whereas this movie has a real joy and and uh, and, and life under it. Um, I love Chris Evans's role in the film. I love everyone's just talking about him forever, and then he shows up and he's just this big fucking prick. Um, mm-hmm. I I love his sweater. I love. <laughs> oh god, yeah, good cho- good choice of sweaters. Um, I love that you think that once you find out that she is quote unquote, the murderer, like you think the whole movie is going to be about how she keeps it a secret. And then like 10 minutes later, she tells the whole thing to one of the family. Like it keeps you on your toes and it was so much fun. And I saw it in the theater with my parents on Thanksgiving day. And we That's all a good had to watch on Thanksgiving. With such a, we had such a blast. It was, I was, I went to it and I'm like, well, his whole thing is like John, like I was thinking about Ryan Johnson's career. I'm like, well, he does genre subversion and maybe he's going to push it. Like, I don't know if they're going to get into this or whatever, but like it is super appealing in a sort of broad mainstream way. I think it has been a big hit as well in a way that like Looper was not. Um, yeah. I'm happy for him. He deserves it. So like, I just like, it makes me happy. And it also makes me excited to think that like, if, if Ryan Johnson can make this kind of movie, which is so up his alley and like the kind of thing that you might think would not be, have a broad appeal and he can do it and he can do it in a way that is both really, really good, but also broadly appealing to audiences. And then maybe they're just going to let him keep making <laughs> whatever kind of movie. He wants. I want that. Oh, please. I think he's going to be fine. Uh, yeah. He's going to do that. He's, yeah. he's doing good. So that's exciting. And uh, I just, yeah, I just, this movie is a movie I ha- I only watched the one time in theaters, but it's a movie that I definitely want to return to. And like movies like Sleuth and Death Trap, like movies that I have seen multiple times just because I I just love the energy and the verbosity of it all. Um, yeah. And the, That's why I saw Clue like 20 times when I was a kid. Uh, right. It's not a great movie and it's Clue not consistently like funny. Entry, it's the entry level like... Yeah. You yeah know, it's the entry level version most of Most screwball-y version. You... Like, if you were a little kid and you like Sleuth, that'd be very strange. <laughs> yeah, that would be strange. I, I, I may have been that kid. <gasps> you, are very, you are a very strange child. But uh, 
Um, yeah, I really love Knives Out. That's number, my number eight. My number eight is the complete opposite. It's a movie called Beanpole. And it's the most joyless and <laughs> darkest and depressing movie I've seen about PTSD in a long time. And this one worked on a pure emotional level. There's a scene about 15 minutes into this to where I had to turn it off and decided I'm going to wait because I can't handle that. Um, and again, it starts off as what you, it's, it starts off in a way that you think, okay, this is a mother and a son and the mother's a nurse and they're just trying to get through. Um, I want to say it's world war two. Yeah, I think it's world war two. Uh, it takes place in Leningrad, I believe. And, so you find out that this, that this that the little kid is not necessarily her son, but it's her best friend's son. And her best friend is also a nurse. She just was away for a little while. And she comes back to work in Leningrad, and they have this really interesting friendship together. Um, so <clears throat> it's, it's about them trying to navigate through, you know, the hospital they work in. You see a lot of the victims and what, what they're experiencing as a result of being wounded in the war. Um, but our, our main protagonist, she has a, a brain disorder that causes her to shut down. Um, it's very much like narcolepsy. I was, I was thinking of uh, my own private Idaho and River Phoenix, just like falling asleep randomly in unexpected moments and places. She shuts down and just stops talking and basically like starts wheezing, but she can't physically move. It's almost like sleep paralysis while you're standing up. And so this happens um, in very inconvenient times throughout the movie. And it's as a result of her being injured during a blast. Um, and we, so we see this at the outset and we see how she copes with this illness, but it's also, she has this really strong connection with her friend and how they're trying to deal with what's going on outside, but also deal, deal with what's going on inside. It reminded me a lot of one of my favorite films, uh, four months, three weeks and two days. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's shot like that. Um, you know, there is a lot of handheld. There's a lot of franticness going on to things going, you know, because obviously there's a war taking place and, you know, there's a lot of action in the background, but it's more about these two characters and, uh, how they deal with tragedy, how they deal with one another. Um, but again, it's not something I want to like go too deep into because a lot, a lot of people have seen it. Um, and the shock and surprise of things that take place is part of the experience. But if you're familiar with four months, three weeks and two days, and you know what, then you kind of know the tone that this film is striking, but it's this really textured portrait of uh, a friendship that's fractured as a result of war but it's also about confronting trauma and how friendship can get you through it. Um, even if that friendship may or may not help in certain ways, um, it could be a self-destructive friendship. You sort of find that out as it goes along. Um, and there are, you know, outside relationships they form with a couple of men that um, are, you know, sort of swept under the rug eventually, but it's just really a character study of two women as they navigate through the war and, their experiences together that really, really, really enveloped me. And uh, I was very moved by this. I believe it officially opens this year. I highly encourage everyone to see this, but be prepared because it is emotionally taxing. Beanpole. All right. Number eight. Pretty good. 
It's it's something. It's number one on Kurt Halfyard's list, and also made Wee Baby Thomas's list. And I'm glad that they included it because I sought it out. All right. What do we have here? We have here at my number eight, uh, the uh, only documentary on my list. Yeah, holy uh, crap. I don't think any made my list. I mean, there's some in my yeah. top 40, but yeah. Right, but I, I think it's one that's uh, quite special. It is 63 Up. Oh. <laughs> Perhaps that rings a bell. I'm, I'm waiting for them all to die, and then I can watch the whole... <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, I figured. The, uh, so so for those that, that don't know, this is a long-running uh, social experiment that has created uh, one of the most unique sets of films to, to ever exist. It's something that really can only be done once, and, and this series is it. In, in 1964, <laughs> some documentarians uh, found a group of uh, 14 uh, British school children from uh, public schools, private schools, from various locales, various uh, uh, types of kids. And they decided that uh, they would interview them, talk about their lives at the age of seven, and then meet up with them every seven years after that to see what's happened to their lives and to see if if their theory is correct, which is that uh, show me the child and I'll show you the man. So this series has been now going on for a while, and this year they are all 63. Mm. And one cool thing about the series is you are not required to see them all. They, they basically um, create a movies that encapsulate all the earlier movies. So you c- constantly uh, have clips from of uh, all the... Uh, interviewees at various ages and you you see in real time kind of how they've changed so you see the you know the kid and his attitude then you see the you know him as a him or her as a teenager and then as a young adult then as a you know married person middle age and finally now everybody is heading into uh being senior citizens uh one one person sadly did pass and Aww. yeah, and uh, well, and and even they're even talking about age. They're like, uh, "What what's it like being sixty three? And then then they basically look at him. Oh, I don't know. You're you're ten years older than we are. What's it like <laughs> being in your seventies? So and, could you just jump right in and watch? You, you can. There, there is no need to uh, not. There's no need to think you need to watch the earlier films because the earlier films are basically incorporated into the film. And the they're 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 fascinating. They're um all ended up very differently. You have kind of a you know and, and like the snooty upper class kid did become a barrister, this really uh personality, uh, larger than life kid did become a jockey and then an actor. And hmm. it kind of fits in with a, a little bit of their theory is that you do see, well, yeah, we can kind of see how these people became who they are from observing them at a very young age. That's a really interesting sociological experiment, but also I, I love this idea for a film. I mean, obviously everybody, you know, talked about what Richard Linkletter did in a short span of time with boyhood, but this series just fascinates me. I, I I would like to see all of them eventually, but part of me does want to just jump in and experience right. and there's no something. Re- there's no reason not to. I did in fact go back and and see them all at various sure. points, 
and they they actually get more fascinating as they they go on because mm-hmm. there's real there really is only kind of so much uh, variation that you know the set the, the teenagers going to have because everybody goes through their teenage years but then as they get older and older you definitely see uh for instance one uh one of the subjects turns on the director and starts to confront him. It's, it's Ma- Michael Apted, a great uh, British director, turns yeah, yeah. out, uh, starts to confront him at how she's been portrayed in the earlier films. And so that's kind of a cool moment. And you also don't ignore the fact that all these people's lives have been changed by being part of this film. They were, huh. one of them talks about how they were uh, in, in a car with uh, somebody from uh, the royal family. And the, and they were like they were the ones that got recognized. <laughs> Fascinating, huh? I, I just wonder if will they make it to ninety two up, you know? Or... Well, well, I mean they might, but I mean <laughs> like, I don't who, know that the dir- I don't it? know that the director <laughs> will make it to that's ten what, years past ninety two. But do you think there's somebody else is going to take on the role? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would imagine going in that until sort they're... of scenario, you have set up contingency plans. Yeah, I mean, if you had, you know, if, if Kirk Douglas had been a part of this, <laughs> right? You know, it's a hundred and something. At this point, he is a hundred and something. At this point, yeah, yeah it's true. I want to see this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah it sounds was, great. I don't think it's anymore. It was. It was at the music box for a week. Yep. Or two. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So next up, we have some lists, don't we? We sure do. Oh, uh, this next one comes from Sean Pontau. Uh, number ten is Parasite. Number nine is In Fabric. Number eight is Doctor Sleep. Mm-hmm. Number seven is The Lighthouse. Number six is Relaxer. Number five is Little Women. Number four is Sixty Three. I'm just doing that to make you mad. Number four is 63 up. Number three is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. His number two is Midsommar. Woo-hoo! His number one. It's in my top 40. I, I don't know why I'm woohooing. Uh, yeah, like you, I don't love it nearly as much as Hereditary. Full blown. I haven't even seen it. <laughs> and number one was The Irishman. Oh, cool. All right. So I have a list from Dalton Smith. And uh, he has a little note. Hi, Dalton here. During the lonely summer of 2018, I came across Director's Club. It was it was the best film school I could possibly have had. Oh, I disagree. Was at the, <laughs> I was 18 at the time and was fascinated by your discussions of these movies. Nowadays, I'm delighted to see Patrick's interesting and well-articulated opinions on Letterboxd. Agreed. Thank you, Dalton. All right, so his list. At number 10, it is a tie between the Irishman and John Wick hmm. at number nine, we have the lighthouse number eight, Mr. America. I think that's our first appearance of that. Film. I don't, I'm not I don't know what that is. is. Um, number seven is also a tie between little women Dinner. and Russian doll. <laughs> Which one was that for? Russian Doll is a Netflix miniseries. Right. Uh, It's really good. I've never seen it. I just wanted to make a weird noise after Little Women. I'm just going to make weird noises all every movie now. No. Are you going to make it? Well, here's one one for you then An Elephant Sitting Still. (laughs) (laughs) Number six. Number five, First Love. I thought you liked First Love. Did you like that one? What? I thought you liked it. I made a weird noise. Oh, okay. had nothing. I thought it's that just what we're. It's just what we're doing. Now. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> Number four, us. Number three, once upon a time in Hollywood. Sleazy, gross, reactionary, and very rewatchable. Mm-hmm. 
Number two, Uncut Gems. And at number one, Parasite. And he says, uh, Beyond the Beyond. Oh, yeah, Bong, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) Bong is an idol of mine, and this is his best film since Mother, and one that will comfort me until the end of my days. I think maybe Dalton didn't see the ending. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Maybe Dalton's a member of the ruling class, and that's why he (laughs) wanted (laughs) We have a list here from Nick Sansone. He's a young, passionate future filmmaker, um, a, a very talented young man who uh, I've come across at the uh, film festival once or twice. Number 10 on his list is One Child Nation. Ooh. Number nine is uh, Blinded by the Light. Number eight is Brittany Runs a Marathon. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It's in my top 40. Uh, number seven is The Peanut Butter Falcon. Mm, sounds delicious. <laughs> number six is Uncut Gems. Number five is Marriage Story. Number four is Those Who Remained. I don't know what that is. Uh, number three is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number really two. good ellipses work there, Jim. I appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. Number two, Parasite. Mm-hmm. And number one, oh, a very good film called Little Women. No noise for that? No needed. Okay. Not needed. I've made noises for Little Women. Um, that, all, your, take, all your life. Please don't take that out of context. <laughs> you, that came is, out, you came out of the world. That womb. is a really disturbing thing to take out of context. Hold on. I, I for some reason, closed the tab that had my list on it. Because oh, I was trying to look up what Beanpole was. It's a movie. We uh, have to talk about our number 20, numbers 20, <laughs> our number seven films of 2019. And for me, as I wait for this to load, I would say that in overall, in conclusion, my number seven film is Uncut Gems by the Softy Bros. Oh, wow. Patrick, we have a match. So we're talking about... Wow. I was talking about um, sort of divorce story. I feel like there's another one I was talking about (coughs) where it was like, divorce story feels like Noah Baumbach, but like, ah, let's... Let's cut it a little bit. Let's 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 step on it. Let's add some baking soda. Let's make this palatable to the masses. Not everyone can take that mm-hmm. pure shit. Um, you know, squid and the whale. It's going to turn off a lot of people. But uh, marriage story. We we might get ourselves some Oscar gold here. Uh, Uncut gems feels like the Softy Brothers doing a wide release good time, um, where it's like, all yeah. right, let's. We can't. We gotta, we gotta give a little bit more to this character. He can't entirely be defined by the fact that he's a raging asshole. Don't worry, he is. But like, all right, we're gonna have this take place over a long course of time. Let's have his family there. Let's have this. All right, it feels a little bit more like a movie you might see. Um, so in some ways, I find it like a little disappointing because I, I do think Good Time is a really cool movie that is like exciting in a way that this movie doesn't quite hit those highs. On the other hand, I think that they made this sort of step towards the mainstream a lot better than they could have. I think um, it mostly retains all of the live wire. Like the whole thing about good time was the entire movie. You're like, what do you, no, don't do what? Oh, I mean, God. I was doing that in uncut gems too. Right. That's what I'm saying. I, I, you really do still do that in uncut gems. The second he takes the, uh, uh, and the, the uh, NBA championship ring and like immediately to a pawn store or uh, a pawn shop. You're like, Jesus Christ, where's this movie? You are, you are, you're an animal. You're a monster. Yeah, that was, oh God, don't do that, dude. 
Um, so like, I think this movie, you were talking about, like, you couldn't even really view him as an anti-hero. Like, I think that's good. Cause I don't think the movie does either. I think the movie is explicitly like the, it opens on a colonoscopy because that is the softies MO. They also did a heaven knows what, which is a, a very, uh, harrowing sort of tale about a drug addict. Oh, and, yeah. uh, um, they did a film before that called the pleasure of being robbed, which is a lot more sort of quirky, magical realist, um, sort of thing. But I should see that. They are about just sort of looking at the ugliest parts of humanity and just staring and diving straight in. And not because they're moralists, not because they have something political to say. They do it because they like making the audience squirm and they know that they can. They know that there's a way this is supposed to go. And if they do something else, then the audience won't know what is possible anymore there will be an uncharted territory it's sort of the thing that Wes Craven did in Last House on the Left and like Hills of Eyes where it's so beyond the pale in terms of good taste that you're just like oh what is what's gonna oh Jesus and so this is a movie that I think does that less than good time and to me that is like the thing about the movie so in some ways this is less but on the other hand I think the script is better I think the sort of wider scope allows for a lot wider diverse of really interesting characters. I think they are amazing at casting and always have been. You go back to heaven knows what, that's like a no budget movie. That movie looks incredible and every person in it feels like a real person in that world. They don't feel like an actor cast in it. Um, This movie is the same way. Every single person in this movie just, they look like they're not wearing any like movie makeup. They just have, they blemishes. They're just like, they just got weird faces. That helicopter pilot's one of the weirdest people I've ever seen on film. Like oh, I was, yeah. I was watching it the whole time. I was convinced it was like a Suspiria sort of thing, where I was like, "All right, what famous actor is that? <laughs> like under some crazy makeup? Is that a Michael Douglas? He kind of sounds like Michael Douglas, but no, he's just like this guy who was this famous person in the you know New York City garment district." Uh, right. I did give it extra credit for casting Judd Hirsch. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Judd Hirsch. That was great. Uh, Eric Bogosian, great. Right, yeah, they're they're using all these really good um, sort of character actors who aren't necessarily in their prime, but use them in interesting ways, um, sort of in a way that Noah Baumbach does. It feels, and also, like, you watch this movie, and you're like, oh, yeah, like Noah Baumbach, they seem like they're obsessed with the 70s. <laughs> like, you think? Uh, this is, so... Yeah, this, it's like uh, John Cassavetes, Robert Altman kind of a thing. You know, it's like the, the overlapping dialogue. I was just like, yeah, this, was, this reminds me of California Split a little bit. I mean, it's but it has a, it's a lot a, more energy. Yeah, craziness. it's about a gambling addiction like California Split, but yeah. like Robert Altman has such a wildly different kind of makes wildly different kind of movies. He can't like McCabe and Mrs. Miller is also the story of someone who keeps getting well, deeper true. and deeper over their head. But like you look at the two ways, they're after very very different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like this movie is just about that juice. That movie is just about that moment. It's sort of. If you look at, and so this is something that I disagree with on certain, on Tarantino and some, with some people where it's like, I think Tarantino post death proof has mostly been thoughtful and autocritical and like him examining himself and his movies and sort of looking at why he does the things he does. Um, it's a good take. But if you look at early Tarantino, like there's a reason he cast himself in the movie and he says the N word six times. And it's not because he, thinks that he's making a statement. He does it because he knows it's going to make you uncomfortable. And he's like, it's like, you have to talk about it. Cause I'm the, I'm the celebrity writer director who made the movie. And this is the scene I'm in. And I'm going to make you have to have a position on this. And I think that is a 
bad approach in terms of that specific instance and that moment in Pulp Fiction. Um, you can also talk about its, you know, sort of depictions of the gimp and all that and like how they're scary, you know, queer men who you run the pawn shop and all that. Like, like there's, there's things about that movie that are, are offensive, but like in a way that's like, oh, whatever, it's not worth relitigating 1994 indie films. But um, I think the softies are the same way. And this is like my big sort of apprehension with them is I watched this movie and I watched Good Time and I'm like, and I watch a uh, heaven knows what. And I'm like, I don't know if you guys are good people. I think, <laughs> I think maybe you want me to be uncomfortable and you don't care how you do it. And you don't care if you do it responsibly or irresponsibly. I think this movie, the only punches it pulls, it pulls because it's getting a wide release as opposed to like good time, which I think in Chicago, like got a weekend screening or like a midnight movie release. It basically didn't play in Chicago, but this movie is getting a wide release. And you know, again, they're trying to filter their shit so it can reach a wider audience. So like, all right, we can't, the way the internet works, there's going to be a hundred thousand think pieces about the racial <laughs> dynamics of this, unless we do the bare minimum and open it at the diamond mind. And then you can say, oh, look, it's a movie that understands that this whole world is built on blood and built on, you know, exploited labor and built on imperialism and all that. Th that's not what the movie's about though. No. And there's a version of this it's movie like that could have made you way more uncomfortable that was way more in your face about what it's saying about the Jewish community and what it's saying about the black community. And I think like in both cases, I'm like, look, if if if, if a couple movies down the line or some interview down the line, it's like, oh, it turns out they're alt-right white supremacist people. I watch this movie. I go, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe. Like exactly. Like, I, I mean, you could. I could definitely say about S. Craig Zoller movies. Right. Exactly. Um, but, uh, That's like I. I think they're they're just a little bit smarter about how to present that and make it palatable. But like, I think ultimately they their only real um sort of working philosophy is l let's let's make them fucking squirm, and they which do. I enjoy. They do it great. I love it too. And it's yeah. like so. It's one of those things that I look at and I'm like, eh, I don't know. This is. Like, I feel like if I was a Nazi and I was trying to make a movie about Jews who are on the Diamond District, I'd probably make it a lot like this movie. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like if I was going to depict athletes and rap stars as, like, <sighs> Diamond-obsessed weirdos, like, the, probably this is how I would do it. You know, like, I look at this movie and there's a lot that makes me uncomfortable, but I think, like, they, yeah, I think they well, know. Good time made me feel uncomfortable a lot. Right, exactly. Certainly casting uh, the brother as a mentally challenged. Yeah, exactly. Person. One of the softies themselves play, a, a, yeah, a, a, a someone with a, a developmental disability, despite yeah. the fact that they don't have. Like, I think they do this shit for that reason. So, yeah, I don't know. But I really did enjoy my time with this movie, and it is exciting in a way that few other films this year are. And it is, I agree. And it it, it does have an energy that few other films this this era are. And I don't know how many more movies they can make along these lines. Like, Yeah, I have no idea what they're going to do You know, it would be kind of cool if they made a movie uh, that had even a single female character who wasn't uh, a pushover, who was just being used by men. Like, like yeah. that's literally every... Or except for The Pleasure of Being Robbed, where the protagonist is a woman. But again, that's like magical realism. It's not really in the same mode. And heaven knows what has a strong female protagonist. It does right? not have a strong female protagonist. She is in an abusive co codependent relationship with an absolute monster who makes her slit her wrist in the opening 10 minutes. Did you not see that movie? I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is all she about she's character. in this. Well, no, that, that doesn't make a strong female protagonist. That mm. means that she is a, it's, it's so the actor who plays the, uh, the lead of heaven knows what it wrote the memoir. She was oh, an actual right. former drug addict. Right. And she wrote the memoir that the movie's based on. 
So she's like very good in it and it's well observed because yeah. it's going off of those details. But like the whole movie is Just about the authentic. fact that it's all well, right, but that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of, all of the women in their movie have no control over their lives and are just used by men. And like, well, maybe at a certain point, stop doing that. Yeah. Okay. I agree there. Yeah. So, oh yeah. No, I'm sorry. You no, that's okay. I mean, no, I, I, I echo all of that. Uh, to me, it just felt like I was back in New York. Um, going there, there's just like this hustle and bustle energy going on wherever hustle you go. Hustle and bustle. Uh, yeah. You make it sound like it's a Richard scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, uh, I mean, it's a dopamine rush of a movie that, uh, you got earthworms and firefighter hats. It's just wild out there. It is crazy. It's just a crazy, it's crazy to go to New York for a little Mm -hmm. while and experience that world. Um, obviously it's not, I don't, I've never been to this world in particular, but it, um, again, like I think what they do in terms of authenticity of the worlds that they're inhabiting, is uh, very organic and very intense and uh, feels really lived in. And again, there's not a lot, you know, you could, I agree with Brad in terms of like Adam Sandler's characters being despicable and certain people, I mean, I've listened to a couple of podcasts where they're like, I don't want to experience movies about self-destruction and, and people like essentially just not caring about their own well-being. It's just not enjoyable to experience. And I can see that. Um, I just happen to, I never mind anxiety inducing self-destruction. Right. I mean, I think there's a difference between characters who are self-destructive and don't care and characters who are addicted and. Yeah. And, or they lack the self-awareness. Right. You know, but it's more that when you're watching a character who has a goal, you can like watch them drive towards something. Whereas you're watching a character that has no goal, then, then it's just like, oh, I'm just watching bad behavior for yeah. bad behavior. Yeah. Sake. Right. And for me, there has to be that other element like. Uh, Johnny and naked uh, Mike Lee is naked is just as despicable and, and oh, self-destructive. Yeah. But for me, he has so much else going on that I was <coughs> wanting to watch him and see this disaster unfold. And I didn't quite get that same second level. Sure. I think the plotting in this movie, especially compared to like good time, which is just sort of a series of, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Mm -hmm. I think they did a good enough job that I was always captivated and wondering what was going to happen next. Even if I didn't care if he lived or died. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much by the end. I was like, yep, Uh, there you go. But it's still, it's still a really great film and I'm excited to see what they do next. How about your Brad? My number seven film, it's a nostalgic look at an aging stuntman in a long past era of Hollywood. And of course, I could only be talking about Western stars. (laughs) Western stars is a Bruce Springsteen concert film. Okay. And, uh, uh, at its base level, in my humble opinion, Bruce Springsteen is just about the greatest performer to ever take a stage. And so that's my bias coming in. Hmm. And so this, to me, is one of the one of the best concert films that stands alongside The Last Waltz, uh, Stop Making Sense, uh, Neil Young's Heart of Gold, and, and this one. And it does something wow. uh, additionally, which is... Uh, it's a style that Bruce Springsteen has not worked in before. It doesn't sound like any previous Springsteen albums or concerts or anything. Western Stars is also the name of uh, his new album that has just come out this year. And uh, 
they're basically folky uh, story songs. That's why I mentioned the stuntman. The title track is all about the the life of this stuntman, and the lyrics are so vivid that each song is like a mini movie within itself. It's Springsteen basically on acoustic guitar backed by a full orchestra. Hmm. And so it's, it's neither the full rock band nor the, the solo acoustic. Kind of like but Nash, this, Nashville country western. Yes, it's this lush sound that he's exploring. And the comparison that's often made, which is apt, is to uh, the music of Glenn Campbell. And he does end the film with a cover of Rhinestone Cowboy. But he takes Rhinestone Cowboy in a different place. Ah. And it's filmed in uh, his barn, which is bigger and fancier than you would imagine a barn to be. <laughs> but it's Bruce Springsteen's barn. But it, it, it also creates this wonderful visual atmosphere where you're watching the performers and watching uh, Springsteen in this environment that is very much home because it's also uh, very self-confessional. It's coming right off of his Springsteen on Broadway performance, which is all about autobiography. And in between each song, he, he takes us on to various uh, parts of his ranch and kind of just tells us, the story behind the song and explains the context and why he wrote this and what he wanted uh, to say with it. And the overall effect is something that is incredibly cinematic for a concert film. And the music is wonderful. I feel it's Springsteen's best work in about 20 years. And if you like music, if you, uh, either are a fan or are curious about what Bruce Springsteen can do and just what a, a, a captivating performer can be like on film, uh, this is one of the best examples of it. I'll have to see this one. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm okay with Bruce What is the balance of like biographical, this is, because there are a lot of movies now, because it's the kind of documentary that's very marketable, especially on streaming services of mm-hmm. like, here is the biography of a musical artist that you may or may not know the story of. What are the, what's the balance of like, this is a, about Bruce Springsteen's life and career versus like, this is about the new album and, and the stories on the new songs. Probably uh, 70, 30 about the, the album and mm. the music itself. He does go into, in the middle of this, in between the songs, he does does go into some autobiography, but really he's talking about what inspires these characters. And again, they're, they're characters. He's not just singing about himself. He's creating these little mini portraits. All right. Should we go to number six? Should we go to number six, Jim? Uh, yeah, and then we'll take a break after number six. Uh, let's see. Oh, 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 yeah, let's do that. Let's do number six. I was going to say let's read lists, but we're going to wait. Number six, Patrick. The Souvenir by Joanna Hong. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 very good. So this is a hard movie to watch. Uh, A little bit. Not hard to find, track down compared to some of these other movies. It's on Amazon Prime. It's free with Prime if you have it. Um, It's a hard movie to watch because it is a approach to storytelling that... I'm, I'm sure I've seen at some point, but it, it feels very different. Whereas it is about a young woman who is a film student and it is about her relationship with a much older man 
um, like 15, 20 years her senior, um, who works for this state that takes place in England. He works for the State Department of some sort. Uh, and he is a heroin addict and is about sort of how they go, fall into a relationship and, you know, how they try to make it work and how they fall out of it and how they sort of come back together at some point. And so it is just sort of this long, you know, over the course of two years, sort of a generally formless story about the, this relationship. Um, but the way it is shot and the way it is, the film is structured, um, it feels like a memory. It feels like, it feels like it is really trying to, you, it does not want you to feel like you have stable footing. There's very few close-ups. I don't think you see a close-up of his face until like an hour in the movie. Um, there's, you see them like through a glass talking at a party and that's the first time they met. You, so the first time I watched this movie, I got like 20 minutes in. And I was so lost because I was like, wait, who is this? Is this the, I thought they were, what? Like it's, so this is a movie I had to sort of, watch 20 minutes of it and then walk away and then come back and rewatch it knowing what I knew from the 20 minutes. And then I, then I was able to put together pieces. So it's a, it, it makes you work for it. Um, yeah. Like pay attention. Like it's the kind of movie it <clears throat> takes place in the mid eighties, but you mm -hmm. don't know it takes place in the mid eighties until like it might dawn on you when it dawned on me, which is with 20 minutes left in the movie. Like it's that kind of where she's like a film student. So of course she's sort of, dressed in these kind of retro clothes and she's listening to records and stuff. And like, Oh, I just heard the soundtrack. I'm like, I love all these songs. This is a good soundtrack. I don't really like, it didn't occur to me. They're all from the eighties just cause they, they, if you are a hipster who was into music from before you were born, you might also be a 23 year old who listens to that Robert Wyatt song and the specials and all that sort of thing. Um, so like, it's a movie that it's like looking through a glass darkly. It is like, you really are trying to parse out um, everything, and but what you're, what you are sort of waiting in and suspended in, is the emotions of the of the experience of her. He's this sophisticated older guy, and he's interested in her, and when and that is like a really intoxicating thing at that age, and it's about her sort of not, you know, she she accepts what she should not accept about him that he's a you know a heroin addict then he's going to borrow money and go score heroin and do heroin and then come back like she just kind of goes with the flow cuz she's just like well i guess you know it's like i'm in the art world people do drugs like you feel her sort of really trying to figure out who she is through over the course of the movie and like this relationship is part of it and the reason it even gets as far as it does is because she is at that age where you're still trying to actively pick up pieces and, you know, figure out what your identity is. And so it's, it's kind of a hard movie to talk about because it is so overwhelmingly about the feel of it as opposed to yeah any one aspect. There's not like one formal technique. It's not like, Oh, you know, it's this kind of camera work. It's this, it's a lot of little choices that add up to make, um, it's basically a story of a relationship only told at like glancing angles where you kind of has to always do extra work to figure out the significance of any given scene or what, you know, there's no exposition. There is only, oh, I guess she cut her hair. So I guess this takes place, you know, later, <laughs> you know, like there's been a yeah. jump time. Like nothing, it's something like nothing that. is spelled out. To you. It's a lot like, it's a lot of stuff like that. But to me, that really did feel like trying to remember being in my early twenties and being in a relationship and like, you know, making bad decisions. And, um, it's, 
there is this just eternal feeling of this is my life is supposed to have started now and it hasn't. And I got to, <coughs> yeah. And I, sure. I guess what life is, is when you just sort of go with how things are going and eventually, you know, eventually she grows more, you know, through her relationship with him, she realized what she does not want out of a relationship, but she also realizes what she does want out of her life. She also realizes, you know, there's a lot of really interesting, um, sort of ways this approach can build a character um, in a way I have not seen in a movie, I don't believe. Um, the the weird thing about it, and you mentioned this before because it was in your one of your top 25, um, is that there's a sequel coming, a part two. This is a complete story. This is not the ongoing, this is not like... That's a great final shot. It's too. not before Sunrise or something where it's like, oh yeah, and then there's the sequel because they meet again. It's like there, there's a very, very definitive ending to this movie it is a complete story about their relationship told beginning to end. And then the souvenir part two, I guess is happening at some point this year, which makes me wonder like, is this going to be an ongoing like Richard Linkletter sort of experiment where we just follow this character? Um, and it's loosely based on the director's life. I would have, yeah, it yeah. feels autobiographical. Like the whole, yeah. whenever I watch a movie and the whole thing feels like a memory, I assume that it is actually the director's memories. Um, yeah. And it's also about being in a relationship that, you know, probably isn't good for you, but you're still in it. Right. You still love the person that you're with, despite, yeah, all, the, all that. That's the aspect that kind of distanced me from the film was that I was just like, okay, what is it going to take for her to wake up and just realize he's a dick? This is a one sided <laughs> relationship. And I, I was just like, okay, it's a beautiful film. I agree. But I, I was like, okay, I, I wish she had more agency and yeah, more. Yeah, you're not alone in that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I think that's, that is the whole thing is that she has to, she, it's not about looking at the relationship and figuring out what needs to be done. It's like looking at herself and realizing what, because mm -hmm. she also, she comes from a comfortable environment. Like her parents are rich and like you get the feeling that she, there is a thrill to her in his lifestyle. There is a thrill oh, yeah. in like the kind of people that he has to interact with that. Like the idea that she comes home and there's just some guy like that he invited over or whatever. And she doesn't know if, is he looking for her? Is he looking for money? Is he going to like, is he in the, criminally like connected? What's going on? Like there, there you get the feeling that she, you know, she doesn't want to take responsibility. You know, she keeps borrowing money from her parents and stuff like that. She doesn't want, she just wants to keep putting the brakes on making a choice. Like, not just in that relationship, but like overall. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of mirrored in her filmmaking where she kind of has these very noble sounding, but also very vague ideas about like, oh, I'd like to make, and this is something like I related to a lot because I do this all the fucking time where like, I should do a movie like blank. And when I say that, it's not, I'm going to make, do the steps to plan that to make it happen. I just say it because it feels good to say it and to imagine that it has happened. And like, that's, you know, that's a bullshit way to be an artist. You know? And like, so she has, she has these long conversations at the parties where she's like, and the whole thing is like a metaphor. And then you see, it, it's like, she hasn't fucking written the first word of the screenplay yet. Like I really thought that character was so strong. And uh, the way that movie depicts her world, I think is really good too. Even though I do think, um, partly because all of the emotions in the movie are so muted and because the way it's shot, there's not really any close-ups or anything. Like, I did not think of her performance as... It was not bad by any stretch of the means, but, like, I was just sort of, like... I like the simplicity of it. Yeah, but, like, not enough for me to, you know, be of note. 
Mm. Um, it's sort of I like that's a, why I liked it. I was thinking of like a, <laughs> of a like a Florence Pugh kind of a relation uh, performance where you just see it and you're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I expect from this. Mm. And then people say it's great, and you're like, what are you talking about? Um, I don't know. I just thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, I can't specifically say, well, this specific instance or this moment. Mm-hmm. Or, is, there, is there? Is there? Let, let, me, like let, me, put it, let me put it this it's way. It's like a nice flow. Is there to another everything? choice that another actor would have made? Maybe. That you can think of that'd be like, oh, another actor might have done this, but that wouldn't have been as good because of this. Like, can you think of any other way that character would have ever been played? No. Okay. So that's like to me is then that actor's not but, doing anything interesting. I don't know. I just found it interesting, even if it wasn't like, again, showy. I, I found the character interesting. I yeah. just didn't find the performance interesting. Hmm. I thought they were both interesting. Okay. Fair enough. What's your number six? You know what's not muted? What? Her smell. <laughs> All right, I'm leaving. Bye. Bye, Jim. All right. On this stupid podcast. Well, okay. Jim, it's just All us. Right. That's fine. That's totally fine. Um, <clears throat> so while Patrick goes outside oh, and, and, uh, <laughs> and does something uh, with a cigarette, I believe. I left my computer. I guess I'll stick around. Yeah, you probably should. It's plugged in and everything. Go so, um, Alex Ross Perry. Pretty cool dude. Is that really what you think about <laughs> Alex Ross Perry? No, I'm, I'm kidding. He seems like kind of a dick as a dude. Maybe. He might be. So, uh, I don't know if you remember a, a, a few years ago, there was this movie called Queen of Earth that was very divisive. <laughs> Uh, among a lot of people. Some people watched it and some people liked it. And some people hated it. Absolutely hated it. And uh, I, I know a lot of people who are iffy on her smell for reasons that completely make sense to me. I mean, the first three acts of this movie uh, are an endurance test. They, uh, <laughs> it's very similar to Uncut Gems. And like, it's just like, let's fucking turn everything up and make you anxious for a good long stretch. And you're watching somebody once again, self-destruct. Um, but then it gets, then it gets to the heart of things. And then, then you experience uh, the aftermath and, and the pathos that Elizabeth Moss carries so beautifully uh, within those last two acts that um, make everything that came before it worth it. Um, in my opinion, anyway. And, has a tremendous payoff with, with how things play out. And I, I do, I, I, I've gone on record. I just have a thing for these types of movies where we watch people, um, you know, very narcissistic people not realize the damage that they're causing other people uh, around them and just sort of they're lost in their own head and they're completely oblivious and they do these really insane things or they just act, you know, obnoxious. And then they sort of realize the damage that they're doing and come to terms and, you know, realize I, I have a daughter. I have somebody in my life that I need to raise. I need to take care of. I need to be a better person. And, you know, that's a typical narrative for this type of story, but um, the sound design, the, the punch drunk love esque score and sound design here uh, really works on me. And uh, it's, it's a really great character study. Reminded me a lot of the film that I, uh, that I also love Georgia, uh, where Jennifer Jason Lee plays a similar character, kind of having these constant meltdowns while trying to uh, be a musician and getting caught up in that world 
and uh, not knowing how to manage her emotions properly. Um, but yes, it is a film that tests your patience. It's a film that I think rewards your patience in a way that I found completely and utterly um, emotionally satisfying and breathtaking. And Elizabeth Moss is just one of our great actresses working today. And this is an excellent showcase for what she can do. And I love it. I am so glad to hear that her smell did not stink. It did not. Patrick? This movie is the same thing happening over and over and over and over and over again for 30 minutes, and then they get to the scene two, and then the same thing that happened in scene one happens over and over and over and over and over again for 30 minutes, and then they get to scene three, and the same thing that happened in scene one and two happens over and over and over and over again for 30 minutes. The thing about it, though, is that also the dialogue is bad. So that's the uh, first 90 minutes of the Queen movie. Of Earth too. What? You said that about Queen of Earth, too. Yeah, right? and I was correct. The dialogue's also bad in uh, uh, Listen Up, Philip. Really? It is. Huh, interesting. Uh, he is bad. He is a bad writer. So wow. the thing about this movie is you get the point five minutes in, but it's going to make you sit there for another 85 minutes. Why? Tell me why it needs to be this long. It doesn't bother me that it's this long. Doesn't but, bother me is not a reason to be the sixth best movie of the year. Well, I mean, in my opinion, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me that you have to go through this experience because that's the cycle that she's in. And it's, you know, you're, but you know that already, you know, that's the cycle she's in five minutes in. Yeah. You gain nothing as a viewer 85 minutes later. Eh, it's just it's induced anxiety in you. Okay. What about this? What if the first scene was 10 minutes long? And mm -hmm. then it cut to the last part of the movie where she is trying to figure out what it even means to be a better person. Yeah. And that, you know, the part of the movie that's actually interesting. What have you made a movie about that? I mean, you could. Why wouldn't you? What make what would make it that worse? Like, I don't know. It's just like, I think to, to be in this world and to be within this character's mindset, it's... It's almost She's like not thinking though. You're not in her mindset. You're a total observer. You, it's not from her perspective. It's from the perspective of everyone else around her. True. Just watching somebody have meltdowns constantly, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, I mean, it's a story that's been done before, but I just find it utterly in intoxicating throughout. And especially when you have somebody like Elizabeth Moss. And for me personally, I've dealt with somebody like this and I've dealt with people who don't realize what they're doing and just kind of, you know, especially in the midst of a recording studio makes it all about themselves and I think that observing that from an outsider's perspective really added a lot. And again, maybe it's just a personal thing with me, but I, I found it really engaging throughout. And I just, I don't know. I've, I've, I've liked Alex Ross Perry's, you know, tendency to just portray these people who are incredibly <laughs> uh, lost in their own head. And I've always, I just didn't find that experience interesting. Maybe it's just somebody who like, I want to empathize with people who are this full of hatred for some reason, you know? And then once you get to that moment where she's playing that piano ballad for her daughter, it happens to be a Brian Adams cover. I'm, I'm completely gone at that. The point. other thing about this movie is that Elizabeth Moss is not a good singer and you in no way, shape or form believe she would be a rock star. Hmm. Or at least I did not. Anytime she was singing, I was like, how on, how in the hell are, is this a Courtney love? Like anything like, 
not just she doesn't sound like Courtney Love, but like if I listened to a rock album that had this vocals on it, I'd be like, well, this is really fucking thin and wimpy. Like, oh, wow. There's no force behind the way she sings. She can do all the twitchy stuff that makes the performance sort of superficially interesting, the way Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker is like superficially interesting. I think they're very similar performances, but like, like as a singer, you're like, oh, no, this doesn't work. Hmm. Or at I least thought, I, I, thought, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I, I really. This movie, I, I, you're so lucky I stuck around because I fucking hated the first 90 minutes. Um, but I was That's like, okay. oh, Jim, Jim's going to talk about it. I should probably finish it. And I do think the ending is good. I just think it's not nearly worth it to get there. And mm. I think that there's alone. no way, shape, or form. That, um, there's absolutely no way a movie that is 15 minutes of that and then, you know, 80 minutes of her trying to be a good person and failing and then trying again and, and like having relapses or like there's no way that's not a more interesting story than just someone being an asshole uh, dialed up to 11 for like 98 minutes. Mm. I mean, maybe it's, it could be shorter. I can make that <laughs> argument. That's I'm fine. sorry. You just, this hat, this particular movie, I, f- I just makes me so mad. At least you didn't put midsummer in your top 10. Maybe I did. You didn't. You already said it was in I'm your top 40. It. Go I'm ahead. Right now. Go ahead. Number one with a bullet. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm talking about movies where the same thing happens over and over again, and you know exactly where it's going. <laughs> anyway, let's get to a different number five. So no, we, number six, sorry. Number six, perhaps less divisive. I don't know. Uh, it's Marriage Story. What the oh, hell? <laughs> and they're gone again. Oh, no. Oh, well. <laughs> It was fun while it lasted. I liked it when it was called Kramer vs. Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just, I'm being ridiculous. All right, go ahead. It's okay. It's okay. I, I have heard right. it compared to that movie. Yeah, yeah, no, there are similarities. I think it's better. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I, I like, it is better. I like how we really do get both sides. I like how there seems to be a lot of empathy. Um, empathy and harshness towards both characters. Yeah, It starts out with this... Uh, with each character kind of giving their own biography of the, of the other part of the couple and what's supposed to be like, say, you know, say the nicest things you can about them. And which is a really creative way of getting a lot of exposition done right at the very beginning. So we, we know these characters and then because we're sometimes seeing them acting in a different way than they're described. It creates a nice little uh, unreliable narrator type of contrast. But uh, for me, the, the, the heart of this are, are the two performances. And Absolutely. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson just knock it out of the park. You are with this couple the entire time, even if it, at some points in the movie you're uh, leaning towards being sympathetic to one person and then other points uh, another person. It's, it's so real. It, it's so truthful in the way it's expressed. Uh, I, for me, this is uh, the best Noah Baumbach film I've seen. Also, the supporting cast. Uh, if we have empathy for uh, for the couple, we the the, <laughs> the one other lesson we learn is uh, don't trust the lawyers. No uh, way. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, Al- Alan Alda, uh, Laura Dern, and uh, Ray Liotta all are incredibly memorable as lawyers. All, Julie Haggerty is really funny as uh, Scarlett Johansson's mom. It's just a 
quality drama throughout that uh, that just you know it, it sucks you in, gets you involved, and and keeps you involved. Absolutely true. Yeah, all the actors are really good. I really I like. I think that's what I'm realizing more and more as time goes on. It's like I'm just really drawn to that aspect yeah. of filmmaking the most. What aspect? The acting. Oh, okay. You know, when they're strong, mm -hmm. maybe that's, you know, an ex also thing that, you know, about her smell. I just love Elizabeth Moss, and I love to watch her act, and I love, you know, everything that she does in that film. So it's, a, you know, again, it's a showcase, but at the same time, I think that's true of, uh, of Marriage Story. It's a great showcase of great actors doing, you know, amazing work all around. Another great ensemble. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. How about we take a break? All right. I, I need okay. one after all that yelling. Okay. Well, since any of us are likely to leave at any point. Yeah. So. That's true. <laughs> Base. Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while, I think of you. Absolutely. Man of Medan still legally now. Yeah, it's true. <sighs> Hi, it's we're in so Chicago. Hard. Yeah, I know. It's so hard to find the dispensary. This, like, you got to be on a waiting list at this point. Ugh, yeah, it's very irritating. There's some coming, though. I got some literature in my mail. I'm excited about that. It's probably yeah, way, we all are. We're going to need it. It's probably way healthier for me than Because we're going to have so many arguments over other directors this year. Exactly. But uh, before we get into any of those arguments, probably we should read more uh, uh, lists <laughs> that uh, listeners sent in. And this time we're going to not make any sounds okay no sounds silence i'm getting tired anyway as i usually do <laughs> it's like it's i know it's I'm, 3 30 i'm an old man macy greenberg sends number 10 midsummer number nine the lighthouse number eight knives out number seven the irishman number six bean pole number five the wheat album number that's the white album number four no pit no sounds please number four parasite number three portrait of a lady on fire number two a high life and number one is monos the hands of fate or just is this a different i don't know i don't know monos this sounds pretty good I think it stars Julianne Nicholson and played the music box for a while. Oh, pretty good. I need to see it. I'll look it up. It's All pretty right. good. Oh, is it? it, it oh, uh, okay. It was a couple below my top 25. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to read the uh, one and only list of the one and only uh, Brian Tallarico from RogerEbert.com, uh, whose number 10 is Pain and Glory. Number one, I'm sorry, <laughs> that would be skipping a lot. Uh, number nine, uh, for Sama. Number eight, A Hidden Life. Number seven, Ad Astra. Number six, Us. Number five, Transit. Four, Parasite. Three, Marriage Story. Two, The Irishman. And at number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have a list. Do you? From Lennart Robert. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. I apologize if that's the case. He says, important disclaimer, I live in Belgium, so the release dates of movies here is somewhat different than of those in the U.S. This will only really affect one title in my top ten, but this mostly means that I haven't had a chance to see a lot of the most acclaimed movies of the year, like Uncut Gems, Hidden Life, Little Women, and many more. Otherwise, my list might look a little different. For now, his list goes like this. Number 10, The Lighthouse. 
Number nine, so long, my son. Number eight, sunset. Number seven, Sophia Antipolis. Go for it. Number six, I lost my body. Number five, the Irishman. Number four, the beach bum. Number three, parasite. Number two, the favorite. Hmm. Number one, high life. I'm pretty sure that was the one he was talking about. You're right. His top ten. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I think he. I think he gave us yes. more yes, than yes, enough. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Thank you, Leonard. All right. Oh, Very good. Gosh, I just clicked out of my list again. I keep closing the window, but I'm ready now for my number five. My number five is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. I have not seen it since I saw it in theaters. We talked about it for hours on this very podcast. <laughs> Refer to that. I have no new info. <laughs> yeah, Girl, it's all right. Uh, it's all right. Yeah. I may, I, I I may briefly be mentioning that later. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's your number five? Number five Jim? is a movie called Knives Out. We talked about that too. <laughs> Wait a second. You don't want to say, you I'm like, say a little thing about Knives Out? I like a good murder mystery. And... Uh, I really like Ana de Armas. She hasn't come up yet, but uh, she's she's quite good in this. Quite good. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, when you talk about a, a, a about you know the fact that I love movies with great ensemble casts that sort of get together and have you know individual key moments. Uh, this is this is one of the better examples. Um, I, I I've been meaning to rewatch Gosford Park, and uh, I don't know if that's in the same category I, I, th- I go ahead i think so our yeah. fr- our friends at uh fresh oh, that's perspective right. yeah they uh, did pair it actually paired the two movies which i think does pair nicely yeah yeah but i i what can you say i mean ryan johnson just knows how to write a a, com- a completely original screenplay but yet um bring forth the genre elements that uh you know and you come to love and you look forward to but like Patrick mentioned very eloquently, I might add, earlier in this podcast, he subverts your expectations in ways that are constantly keeping you uh, on edge and wondering where things are going to go and how things are going to play out. And once things finally play out, oh my God, it's so satisfying and so much fun. I adore this movie. It's so much uh, so much pleasure to be had when, you're, uh, when you got a, a great cast like this. And uh, what it has to say, um, you know, socio-politically, it's kind of kind of nice in, in the end, I think. But uh, uh, there's another. I cool. love it. <laughs> I just don't know what else to say. I just, I just, it's one of those where I was like, over is like, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot. You, there will be think pieces to write about this, but on the simplest of levels, it was probably the most entertained I was all year. There's another cool storytelling trick it has that we haven't uh, gotten into yet mm. that just contributed to its originality is the the conceit of a character that cannot lie in a movie True. like this True. opens up all kinds of possibilities that you know you haven't seen in the genre before. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I, I have a coffee cup to purchase. Mm. Right. As a result of the <laughs> I final was, shot uh, of this movie. I was listening to Exile on Main Street at, at uh, work on Saturday, and every time that song came on, that's like, oh, that's what that 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 yeah. song belongs to that movie now. Sweet yes, Virginia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, Ryan Johnson, for continuing to be a, a great filmmaker and writer and all around nice guy. Cool. Very cool. So 
My number five is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, yes. Uh, I've heard of that one. This this was this is a special film. I know it hasn't been released widely yet. I think it's uh, coming out in February. Mm-hmm. And if you love film, which I, I I do, please everybody just. See I'm this. still up in the air on this <laughs> whole. Yeah, on this film. Thing. I'm kind of looking at Thomas Edison, being like, maybe not, maybe a poor move. It's it's gorgeous. That's that's the first thing about it. It, yeah, is, it is like. Terrence Malick in his prime, the the way this uh, film is shot, the way it's just every every frame is a painting, as would Very be ap- appropriate for the movie itself, and then what it has to say on on its subject matter, because it's a movie very much about people looking at each other and what it means. To look at somebody in it, uh, and here now Jim's looking at me. So, it's a very I, 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 I walked. Podcast. I asked for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of the best romances I've seen in, in quite some time. The uh, the two leads have an amazing chemistry together, but again, it's it's established not through kind of the usual romantic melodrama means, but this idea of how art and the and the act of looking can establish connections between people and also about uh, expectations of women during the period it's set that takes place during the late 1700s and painting has a different connotation in mm-hmm. this movie than it would today because it's basically a portrait has to be painted of uh, a noble woman who's uh, about to be married. She does not want to be married, so she does not want to be painted. But it it, it treats painting not just as, you know, some, uh, not just as an art form, but also as this way of communication, like it's a, a selfie or something that people would send, you know, via social media today. And... Um, it works on a lot of different levels at once, and it does so very quietly. Yeah, it sneaks very, up. On you. Yeah, very, very stately. It, it, it doesn't in, insist upon itself or, or really get in your face at all, but it, it just slowly reveals itself as a, a very special film. It does, and I, 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 I give the, the, the filmmaker props as well for showing us the portrait at the beginning of the film, but not later on. Right. That was a really interesting touch because I figured like, oh, it's going to build up to the portrait and we're going to see it, you know, step by step or, you know, when it's finally completed and uh, we don't. And that's a really cool choice. And there's a third character that's very interesting as well, who is the uh, servant of Mm -hmm. the household, a younger woman who uh, has uh, become pregnant and uh, enlists, uh, enlists their help in, you know, Probably the only thing to, I subplot that I, I don't know if it needed to be in there. It's kind of shoehorned in there well, a little bit. I but. think it did for one reason. This is a, a bit of a I don't know if it's a spoiler, but I'll say that anyway. Um, it, it, but it's one of the most striking scenes in the movie is that you know she she goes to get an abortion, sure. and as it's being done in this uh, you know really the small home uh, of the the woman doing it, uh, her baby is placed next to her 
And that image is just very uh, effective. Yeah, the image itself in, is. Yeah, yeah. In, in and 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 again, a an angle on that kind of what could be a melodrama in other in another director's hands, just being something uh, artistic. Yeah, it's been an interesting year. It's like movies like The Souvenir, like this, and 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 Beanpole. They're they're movies that you kind of expect melodrama, but it's done. Beautifully, and not right. this. Re- I, this resists that, and I'd compare it to yeah. Pain and Glory. Sure, in the way that's that another one. Yeah, resists the obvious melodrama. It exactly. Could go down. Yeah. So I kind of like that. I like this year for you know, kind of being calm, and not you know, grandiose. Sure. Necessarily. Sure. So uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, souvenir certainly fits in that as well. Absolutely. Um, what are you doing, Patrick? What's going on? I'm thinking about my number four film. Oh, I'm just sitting here. Think about number four film. What could it be? Could be some other people, a 2018 film, because that was a festival date, but it had its uh, American release hmm. in 2019. So for Oh, me, is it Relaxer again? It's Relaxer 2. <laughs> <laughs> Electric Relaxaloo. Oh. It's, uh, I just love Pac-Man that much. Sure. I am doing Woman at War. Oh, crap. The Icelandic what? That's right. Well, no. It's Did on, you it's, not put it on your list? It's on, it's on the bottom. Yeah. It's on the bottom of your list? Not, not, your not, no, not, not literally. Not, no, not literally. I just uh, forgot it's in my top 30. Okay. No, it's it's there. It's there. I just Okay, but no. it's not in your top. Okay. No, so you not, didn't forget to mention it. You just All right. Yeah. It's a Icelandic film uh by Benedict Erlingsson. It's the first film of his I've uh, seen and it is a film about a woman who is uh, sort of waging war against a local aluminum factory. She is a uh, uh I guess you could you know, pretty accurately call her an eco-terrorist. She is specifically trying to sabotage the local factory because of the effect that they have on the environment. And she is trying Mm -hmm. to spread her message. Uh, She has a manifesto about um, protecting the environment through direct action that she is trying to spread. And it is about sort of her work doing that at the same time she's trying to adopt a child. And it's, uh, and she is being, you know, it's Iceland, so it's not a huge country. So it is really big news that, you know, she is sort of taking the actions that she does. And uh, so there, the government is very keen to try to find her and stop her. And it's about her trying to keep a low profile. And she has a mole inside the government. And all of this sounds like it is night moves or it is some sort of like kind of bleak thriller. But yeah, it is actually I expected. a very warm, quirky uh kind of a movie the sort of the big visual trick it has or the big sort of recurring motif that you would find striking is that the score is performed there's a couple different sort of modes it shifts into but it's like performed by a jazz band um but you get to see on screen yes you see in the background as like she'll be walking the you'll see the drummer and like the the bass player and everything like just in the background always around her like they're in her apartment playing and um there is a lot of little touches like that, that this movie does to lighten and to sort of open up the movie um it's not a super it's so uh, so the world is doomed and uh, the mankind does not have that much time to live and you can do a certain things with that sort of unassailable fact. And I'm one starting is starting to believe you more. You can sort of become nihilistic and feel hopeless and you can just give up and say, well, nothing anyone ever does will ever mean anything. Um, so fuck it. 
And then the other thing you can do is you can say, all right, let's look realistically at what a person can do and let us figure out how we can maximally achieve that. So like you can't save the environment this is like just broadly speaking in America and Iceland anywhere, like it won't be through official channels. It won't be through the government. It won't be through regulation of certain industries because though all everything that would do that is run by the most wealthy people who would be affected by those kinds of things. So you have to think about direct action. You have to think about, all right, you can protest, but a protest is, you know, whatever. People are upset about this. Maybe it gets on the news. It doesn't do anything. Uh, that's not direct action. Protest is not direct action. Direct action is like you go to the police department and you flatten all their tires. Like that's direct action. So this is a movie about direct action. And direct action is something that movies are extremely skittish about endorsing because movies are released because movies are super fucking expensive to make. So they're released by big companies and big companies don't want to uh, release movies that say, Hey, let's dismantle the system that is fucking everything up. They want to say incremental change can work through the proper channels. And they want to like the dark waters sort of movie is the thing they want to make. They don't want to make a movie in which the terrorist is the hero. They want to make a movie that says their heart is in the right place, but ultimately they shouldn't be doing these things. And woman at war doesn't fuck around with any of that. And in mm -hmm. fact, it has characters in it who voice those things. And those characters are rebuffed. And it is absolutely looking at the audience and saying, she is not going too far. If you think she's going too far, here's why she's not going too far. This is literally the stake of all mankind. And one woman taking down one aluminum factory is not going to save mankind. But this is the sort of thing that will need to happen on a grand scale for anything to ever change. And there's, I feel like over the past several years, I've, um, certainly since 2016, I've grown very frustrated with film because it feels like they're still making the sign of films they made uh, before it felt like everything was over and no one, very few people are really addressing the actual sort of realities of living in the world now. And I think Woman at War is a remarkable movie because it looks it straight in the face and it says, this probably won't work. This probably is not going to save us. We There probably is no hope, but if mm. there is any hope at all, we have to take it. And it sets the stakes, and that's why the sort of uh, subplot about her trying to adopt a child um, is important. And there's a sort of interesting thing going on with her twin sister. She's like a yoga teacher who is, you know, trying to bring people. She's basically trying to deal with things in a in a different approach, which is like I'm going to, you know, if I can teach people yoga, I can teach people to meditate. I can at least bring ease some suffering in the people around me. And that would be my way of helping the world or whatever. And so this is a very much a movie about like, what is the moral thing to do at this point in time in history? And that could all be a real slog and could be real preachy and real boring, but like she's a fucking terrorist. So she gets to go around with like, she has a bow and arrow and connected to the arrow is a giant iron cable and she fires it over these giant uh, high like tension wires, high tension wires. And yeah. because the wires connecting them all, they all like short out. She gets some explosives and she's like, like it's exciting. You watch it and it's exciting the way any kind of thriller is exciting, but only the stakes are real life. It's not someone trying, it's not Jack Bauer trying to stop a fake dirty bomb or some shit like that. It's not like, 
oh, you know, James Bond has to, you know, he has to destroy this computer before they fire the laser that kills England or whatever. Like it's, it's has the, the excitement of that kind of movie. Um, but it, or not all the excitement because it is a lower budget movie and it's not like the most exciting, amazing version of the kind of thing it could be, but it is a good version of that kind of movie and it is fun and it does have a little bit of a sense of humor and it is yeah, very it doesn't much, take itself too seriously. It is very, cause I think, and which is important because like if you actually look at the story <clears throat> realistically, like she would not be able to achieve a lot of what she achieves. Like that you want to tell the story, but you, you know, like it would have to be on such a smaller scale that it wouldn't work for cinema. So they have to do the steps. That's like, all right, this isn't a hundred percent reality, but this is the sort of thing we're talking about. Um, but it's really interested in the human cost. It's interested in her mole. Um, once things start to heat up for him and, sh and he, you know, he has a real emotional strain because he doesn't know, you know, if for whatever reason they find out that he has been collaborating with her, telling her what they know about her and stuff like that. Like, you know, he might, you know, he might be questioned. He might be interrogated and he doesn't know that he wouldn't betray her. And like, these are really real issues that you would come up with when building like a resistance movement and it really cares about the people involved. It's not just sort of a political screed. It is about people who want to make a difference and who want to take drastic steps and are willing to take drastic steps to do so. And it explicitly says it doesn't try to play ambiguous. It explicitly says, and they are right to do so. And that yeah. to me is a brave move in a, in a world where basically no other films will do that. Every other film has to sort of play it like, yeah, well, but you can go too far. And it's like, no, that's not you. Like at this point, everything is so far gone. Like that sort of wishy-washy, like all sides are bad bullshit is not going to play anymore. And I really, really enjoy this movie. It's like, <clears throat> It's a movie I respond to disproportionately to maybe like the quality of how well it's made or any given aspect of it just because there are no other movies like it. It's kind of like Boyhood in that way where it's like, is Boyhood the best possible version of that premise for a movie? I don't know, but that premise is so compelling on its own that that was for me like my favorite film of that year. And this is like a similar thing where it's like maybe if there were a bunch of political movies about direct action that didn't mince words and didn't try to play it safe and didn't try to placate like any corporate overlords who were financing the film, like maybe then I could say this movie wasn't uh, remarkable, but it is. So Woman at War is my number four. I need to see it again. Yeah. I really like it. It's on Hulu, by the way. Everyone, yeah. I think it might be free with Prime as well, um, but uh, it's definitely on Hulu and it's worth seeing. It's a lot of fun in addition to being Did you ever see impressive. Night Moves? Kelly Reichardt's nightmare? I, it did not really interest me. Yeah. It didn't seem like the sort of thing I wanted from Kelly Reichardt, so I didn't bother, and I didn't hear anything that changed my mind. I mean, it's, it's not, I think it's probably her weakest movies, but still worth seeing. Mm -hmm. Number four is a movie we've talked about, <clears throat> and both of you have done it quite well, to where I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sing right now, if that's Okay. If you start singing Send in the Clowns because you love Joker so much. <laughs> Close. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're going to sing Stondheim. God damn it. <laughs> oh, no, I ruined it. You want to do Someone another take? Someone to hold me too close. Someone to hurt me too deep. Someone to sit in my chair and ruin my sleep. And make me aware of being alive. Being alive. Yeah. 
Ah, I love that moment. Part of me is everybody here because if everybody's here, I'd like to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I appreciate it coming even more. I mean, if you had a lot of better things to do, not a word of it to Paul. Remember, Paul, you know, the man I'm going to marry. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's great. It's that's great. my other. That's my favorite song from that uh, from oh, wow. company. I absolutely <laughs> adored that being alive scene. That was I know. so wonderful. It was. Yeah. M Driver is great. Scarlett Johansson's great. Noah Baumbach is great. Laura Dern is great. Ray Liotta, pretty great. <laughs> uh, Alan Alda, pretty great. Everybody's great. Well, when you need your own <laughs> asshole. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I need my own asshole. I That's do. I, I love the delivery. I do want to say, Adam Driver should not ask his employees to make his kids Halloween costume nor help him decorate his apartment. That is mm. unethical. <laughs> and that sort of, that sort of to me in, defines his character in a way where it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah, guy yeah. is very warm and fuzzy and remembers everyone's name and drink orders and stuff. But also like that could be a manipulation tactic. And, there is a thing about this movie where every time she tries to assert herself, he is so instantly dismissive of it. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's annoying. It's like the movie definitely is not on the side of lawyers. It says lawyers make everything worse. On the other hand, you do not get the idea that she could have gotten out of that marriage any other way because he is so absolutely dismissive of any other way to do it mm -hmm. that like she has to put that barrier between her and him. Um, yeah. And I think that especially the way the movie ends, it doesn't really grapple with that the way it could with the fact that he is sort of a toxic I do think, person. I do think him finding the, the list or the letter at the end. I mean, it's a nice moment and it made me tear up, but I just like it's doesn't the movie doesn't need to end there or it doesn't need to end like that. I mean, her tying his shoe at the end, I'm like, fine, they're they're OK together. They kind of have to be because they have a child together. That's fine. That last image, though, of him as like a ghost following them around. Fucking good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. But, but Patrick, did you think that um, that wasn't addressed in the sense that I I, always, I got the impression that that was the reason for the divorce? That is why she just couldn't continue to be married. I think you, I, I, I agree. I think the problem is that it is from his perspective. There are a few scenes from hers, but it is ultimately a film about him. Mm -hmm. And when you make a film about a person who is manipulative in those ways, uh, and they're also the protagonist, you kind of have to do a little extra work to make it explicit. And I think when you have the ending the way it does, it actually does work to do the opposite, to make you more sympathetic. Whereas... The version like a movie like Squid and the Whale, not at all afraid to make Jeff Daniels, you know, like unsympathetic and yeah, consistently like, so. Like it feels, it feels like that is the sort of darkness that if it was being a hundred percent, and I'm not saying like oh this movie's fucking bullshit, like this movie's great, but like if it was going to be a hundred percent honest, it would have to be much darker because there are things about his character that, for me personally, like I just didn't feel like the movie really rectified with, um, you know, because the movie makes it as much she wants to take her career in a different direction as anything else as the reason they split up. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that since it's the last time we'll be talking about Marriage Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because I do think it's a really good movie, but I do too. that kind of stuff really did bug me. <laughs> and uh, it makes first, sense. Time, first time I watched it, I was like, is that, is that meant to be like that? Because maybe, maybe if I went back and watched it, I'd see that was the whole point of the whole mm -hmm. movie, but... I don't think so. I th yeah. But at any rate, that is a very good Food movie. for thought. Food for thought. What is your number four? Yeah, what's your number four, huh? Well, I, I enjoy watching <coughs> a master do what a master does best. So my number four is The Irishman. Martin Scorsese oh. 
has uh, done I, it again. Yeah, I, and I don't. That hasn't always been the case this decade. I really feel like he found a renewed sense of footing and purpose with the silence, and that. And here, that's built upon just in the sense that. He is working at the top of his game, and everyone's at the top of their game. You wouldn't imagine. It almost makes me mad that like Robert De Niro has spent the last 20 years doing crap when he had this performance still left in mm-hmm. him, when he could, he could have been doing this the whole time. And uh, Pacino didn't leave the way De Niro did, and so it's less of a surprise that that he really embodied everything that was, you know, larger than life about uh, Jimmy Hoffa. And also the idea that, um, the idea of hubris, I think that's one of the the great themes of this film is how one can become so involved in their own story and in their own image of themselves that they just don't see what's happening in the rest of the world. And I think Pacino is, is brilliant at uh, pulling that off. Pesci is uh, is a shocker. We we've we've all seen a certain type of performance from Joe Pesci, and here he does the opposite. Here he dials it back, and is as scary as as ever, but in a completely uh, different way through doing as little as possible. Exactly. Yeah. And he's got a tiny tiny role, but I loved Harvey Keitel's little bit too. Yeah. No, it's like a regular And Harvey reunion. Keitel is, hey, is that Harvey Keitel? <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's it's shorthand. It's like, okay, he's the mob boss. You're putting you're bringing Harvey Keitel. You know what you need to know. It, it yeah. it's set. And um there is a certain quietness, I think, as you mentioned earlier, that uh the film embraces because it's not just the mob story that we've been seeing, but it's the idea of aging and uh how having lived an entire life, you know, makes this lifestyle look a little different. So when when you get to the end and De Niro is still keeping secrets, even though everyone around him involved has already died, that says a lot. And and sure. then and then the idea that he can't even be honest with himself, he can't even come to terms with what he with what he's become with the the story that he's told about himself uh to the point where you know you have a wonderful exchange with a priest about well you know you you can feel remorse and and the tragedy of the film is that he really can't and so yes scorsese has given us a a proper follow-up to his series of gangster films and while I, I still think Goodfellas is the gold standard, I think this one does equal or maybe even surpass Casino. Oh, I and, think so. Yeah, yeah, and I would agree. Yeah, and, and so and it gives it, and each film takes it from a slightly different point of view, and it was really rewarding to watch it all unfold. Well said. Do you I, really, wanna, I, I do agree. You want to read some lists or you want to go to I, number three? I like lists. All right, Betty. Let's do it. No one's going to stop you. I got to read Corey Pierce's list. Uh, yeah, Corey's a cool dude. I got to read Corey Pierce's list. He's, a, he's, a, he's all right. He's all right, man. He wrote an email and said, hi, my name's Corey Pierce. <laughs> Here's... <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm just... <laughs> 
All right. Uh, Corey oh, Pierce said, number 10, Booksmart. That's your number one movie of the year, right, Jim? No. Uh, number nine. It's in my top 40. The Peanut Butt Falcon. Oh, Jim, you <laughs> did it again, you little stinker. Ha ha. Number eight, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We haven't heard that one yet. I thought that one was going to be on a couple more lists. Uh, I feel it was like, pretty good. I feel like that Mr. Rogers documentary was on a bunch There's of a moment lists. in there that's pretty great. And, and a, a Beautiful one Day moment. in the Neighborhood? Yeah, one moment. You'll know it. Number you seven it. is Midsummer. His number six is The Two Popes. Is that a Netflix film? movie? Yeah, it's a, okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a series. No, no it, it, it did have a limited theatrical release as yeah. Netflix tends cool. to do. Oh yeah, no, I just I didn't even know if it was a single film or if it was a limited series. Oh, which you're is what I you're thinking of. of the Young Pope. With that's Jude what Law. I think. That's what I think. Sure. My confusion is uh, number five is Klaus. Number four is the Lighthouse. Number three is Parasite. Number two is Us. Number one, The Farewell. The Farwell. The Farwell. What is the Farwell, Corey? It's the uh, Jerry Falwell documentary. It's amazing that Lulu Wang directed two films in 2019. One called The Farewell. I'll fix it. There we go. Now it's correct. I don't know what you just added. This is some editorializing that I don't think is called for. Corey wanted us to know about The Farwell. No, it's it's, it's The Farewell. All right. Lovely, lovely film. Lovely film. How about you go, Jim? Okay. Jason Weinberg wants us to know about his top ten. List. Oh, that's right, Brad's next. I apologize. Yeah, it does say me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with. Please this. do, please yeah, do. It's uh, good. So at ten, we have Booksmart. At nine, Beanpole. Eight, Midsommar. Seven, Her Smell. <laughs> Six, The Irishman. Five, Parasite. Four, The Lighthouse. Three, Uncut Gems. Two, Knives Out. And number one. Under the Silver Lake. Wow. <laughs> All right. Anthony Hebert. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Midsummer, um, we have number 10 is John Wick 3. Number 9, Knives Out. Number 8, Atlantics. Number 7, Midsummer. Is it Midsummer? Midsummer? Midsummer. Midsummer. Midsommar. You can pronounce it however you like. You can pronounce it however you like. You can pronounce it however you like. Number six is Us. Number five, The Irish Man. Number four, Pain and Glory. <laughs> Number three, The Farewell. I wonder if that's related to The Farewell. <laughs> Number my- two is uh, Odd Astra. Number one is... uh, Yo, Earl Sweatshirt. Free Earl. (laughs) Number one is Uncut Gems. All right. Nice, nice. So if you're wondering how far into a podcast we must go before we get completely giddy, this is the moment. Turns out it is three and a half to four hours. Uh Oh, Patrick. What up, Jim? Number three. What What up? What could it be? Number three, you know what it is. You Okay, you tell me what my number three movie is based on what I've said so far. I want to know how well you, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to telepathically send it to you. Now you tell me my number three movie is Joker. Keep going. Uh, Midsummer. Something that you think I would put at number three. In fabric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Ba, 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 ba. So I love Peter Strickland. I really liked Barbarian Sound Studio, mm-hmm. Duke of Burgundy's, mm-hmm. the best movie of that year, one of the best movies of the decade, mm-hmm. top five of the decade. In Fabric is not on the level of Duke of Burgundy, but I did like it more 
the Barbarian Sound Studio, and it is still my man Peter Strickland in his wheelhouse. It is hilarious. It is odd. It is surprising. I think <laughs> I think for me, if I look at my top 10 list, these are the movies that elicited the most sort of surprise joy, the most... These are the films that I went into not, maybe not knowing what I was going to get, and then even while I was watching them, they gave me something different than what I thought they were going to give me. Um, the In Fabric is a very strange movie. On its, it looks, it's just it's downright stupid. At just like a department store sells a haunted dress to kill the people, like it's just it's ridiculous. Um, so as we talked about, Peter Strickland is one of those sort of Euro cult uh, obsessive types, the guy who watches all the uh, just Franco movies and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Dario Junto and, and, and all of these uh, Giallo films and that sort of thing. But um, the thing that his films never had before is they never felt like they took place in a fully realized world. Barbarian Sound Studio almost takes place entirely inside of an Italian uh, sound recording studio as they're working on yeah. a Giallo film. Duke of Burgundy, I guess... Duke of Burgundy has a compelling world. It's not, I wouldn't call it fully realized, but it, it exists on an island only of women where it's only lesbians and they're all into uh, entomology. Is that the study I of insects? Think entomology. So, yes. Like it's, it's a very interesting, compelling world in fabric. I think it, he takes it a step further into creating like a totally compelling universe of this this alternate version of like 60s England um, where there's this sort of hypnotic spell that this department store has over these people but there's like there is a sense of consciousness in terms of class consciousness and and race and um, the lead uh, actor she was in uh, Mike Lee's film uh, Secrets and Lies Secrets and Lies um, Marianne Jean Baptiste. Yes, the, she is a very interesting sort of very, very much so. uh, lead actor to be in a horror film. You don't really see many horror films where the lead is a black woman in her fifties. Um, she is astounding in this. You, Agreed. The part of the thing that makes this so strange is not is the elements of it that aren't strange. The elements of it that are genuinely interested in her and her relationship with her son and her attempts to date. And like her <coughs> yeah. concern over her son's choice of dating and like had they're both, she's a single mother. So they're both sort of like, and she, he's an adult man sort of still living with her. Um, and there are, there's all these little elements in it that you would associate in a movie that like a kind of any movie we've already talked about, like the, like a, a beanpole or a, you know, like you could make a real quote unquote drama. Uh, but instead this is a movie about a killer dress. Um, and when I say a killer dress, I don't mean it's cursed and whoever wears it dies. I don't mean that it's poison. I mean, it literally like slinks around um, on its own and hovers above and people. hovers above people. It's haunted in some way because it's, is this too comic effect? Or yes, is it, okay. it is a dark, dark, it's a dark comedy, but not a dark. It's I would call this characterize this a horror comedy because okay. it is both simultaneously has very scary moments and has the structure of a horror movie, but it also has hilarious moments where uh, I forget where. So I saw this at the beginning of the year at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. So and I have not seen it since. So some of the details are a little foggy for me, but she works um, at like a mail 
sorting place or something like that? Uh, I think she works for an insurance company. Insurance company. Okay, so she works for an insurance company, and there is this like ongoing subplot about her getting harassed by for taking too long a break or something. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The two guys who are like doing the employee reviews are exactly like the two guys doing the employee reviews in office space who are like, what would you say? You like they're that like super. Like almost oppressively there is a proper way to do a handshake, like aggressively <laughs> boring human beings where it's yeah. like, you're, you're only this boring. Cause you're trying to upset me. Like that's the feeling. And then there's structural things about this movie that I don't even want to necessarily spoil because I don't really have anything to say about them other than where this movie goes. You would never Surprising. see coming. Yeah. Um, there's a, is, there's a moment involving a, uh, the, the dress being washed that's actually really scary. Yes. So this is a movie that is about the dress as being this beautiful red dress. And it is this, you know, it's a it's a parody of sort of consumerism of this idea of wanting to live outside your means and wanting to own this beautiful thing and this sort of compelling object that draws people in. And the film is a compelling object that draws people in. There, It is hard to quantify and qualify especially if you haven't seen it in 10 months um but <laughs> but um it's so good i had so much fucking fun i was just laughing so hard the whole time um and i think peter strickland is one of the most original voices not just in horror but like the most original voices working in the world of film um and i am just so on board for whatever he has next um because he has just proven himself willing to really go out on a limb. My hope is that this movie got buried by A24. Uh, my hope is that he can keep making these kind of weird movies because I know Duke of Burgundy barely got released uh, as well, so I don't know if he's actually making anyone any money. But it feels like maybe in A24 saw Duke of Burgundy and was like, we could turn the guy who made that into a auteur star. And then this came out and they're like, Oh, never mind. This is too fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen with it, but like, I'm so fucking glad this movie exists. I love it. In uh, fabric, my number three film of the year. I'm, I'm really glad that uh, this next movie exists. It's number three on my list. And you talk about really anticipating whatever the director does next. Um, I, I absolutely loved The Witch, but I was not prepared for his follow-up in terms of how it looks, the the sense of humor, the servant-like dynamic between these two men uh, who are essentially living in a giant penis. It is The Lighthouse. Match. Wow! <laughs> we did it. It's a fantastic film. And the uh, first time I saw it, I was like, I don't know. What's going on with the, What does this mean? What? You know, and I just, the second time I just let it wash over me, I was stoned and it helped. Uh, I, I just kind of like, like felt more connected to the choices that he made as opposed to like questioning them. Like, what is this supposed to mean? What is this? Why? What what's the deal with the lighthouse? Why is there like a giant squid thing? What what's the deal with the mermaid? Like I had all these questions the first time. Like my I think the intellectual part of my brain was was like you know firing on all cylinders. And then the second time I'm like I'm I'm just I'm a, I'm in for the ride a hundred percent. And uh, talk about impeccable sound design, impeccable performances, uh, just all around 
one of the most unique films I've ever seen. Uh, that is also, I mean, when it was over the second time, I'm like, I can't wait to watch this thing again. I love it. And I, I think these, these two actors together, whew, you, you can't ask for a, a better pair all year in terms of just what, them going at each other. And then suddenly it cuts and they're like, you know, cuddling in the corner. Uh, so, so something like their, their, their drunken antics are hilarious. And then suddenly they're, um, you know, they're, they're sort of, are they, are they, are they intimate? Well, they seem like they want to be, you know? And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I think it's, you know, in terms of any like originality, this is up there for me in terms of being one of the most original films of the year. I love it. And I think people should love it too. And I know Brad loves it. I love it. Uh, which is a little more surprising, uh, for me because uh, I'll confess here I was the only person who did not like the witch oh you're the and one yeah so if that one rotten tomato thing that's 99 instead of 100 that was me ah, so and then and then all the pre-publicity on this was just how you know disturbing it was and all this and so I like kind of had this weird attitude going in like it was like a, a, a chore and so as a result this ended up being the biggest surprise for sure me of the year because i had no idea what a, a wonderful immersive uh world building experience this would end up being i mean and it's happening at every level we talked about the cinematography how that was unique how it really doesn't have the look of any other film. It, it, it almost recreates this, you know, older, if not silent style mm -hmm. of uh, movie making. Then you have these two great performances uh, from uh, Defoe and Pattinson that just keeps building. Cause you think like, where can they go with this? Like, cause it's already pretty heightened at the beginning, but no, no, they've got places to go. It's fascinating. Yeah. And finally, just pure suspense. Just like the way this movie builds dread and 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 because it's so unknown, because you can't locate like what exactly is the threat here? Where is it gonna come from? And it was like a perfect storm. This is a great film. It really is. I'll talk about it later. Okay. Are we reading lists or no, should... with that we're gonna take a little break. Okay. Oh, Frog! Reinecke of Still Watching the Skies has sent in a top ten. He sure did. He said, without further ado, here's my best of 2019 list. You know what it would have been even less ado is not including that sentence. <laughs> Number 10, Give Me Liberty. He said it's a little provincial. It's a local independent film that was funny, frantic, and ultimately moving. Number 9 was Transit. He loved the modern dress aesthetic of the film, and he liked that Christian Pizzold first reworked Vertigo and is now reworking Casablanca. Sure. Number 8 is The Souvenir. They found it very relatable and had a killer soundtrack. Number seven was Pain and Glory, and he was happy to see Almodovar deliver a film that was personal and vital. And, of course, it's an Almodovar film, so the colors were pretty great. Number six was The Irishman. He knows there's been some debate about the de-aging process. Sounds like he already listened to this podcast. But uh, he thinks that 
he was very happy based on the idea of the effect of time on as being the theme of the film. He liked that they used the same actors. Number five was the Farwell. Another the Farwell. I think it says fair. Oh, it says fair. The farewell. Just an emotional, funny experience. Beginning and no villains, heroes, just family struggling. It's the right thing to do. Number very four, sweet. long day's journey into night. Boy, I want to see that eventually. Um, you should. It's a I've. Probably a better long take movie than 1917. Uh, number three was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Very good. He just liked hanging out with the people. Uh, <laughs> number two, I'm really hardcore paraphrasing here. His number two was Woman at War because he's a good guy. Uh, proof that a film can tackle current events earnestly but still have quirky, flawed characters, be playful in its form of use of music, legitimately funny. Throw a thrilling chase or two. It has a terrific lead performance and it's one of the best closing images of 2019. And his number one was Parasite! All right. I don't think I have that sound effect. Nope. Wrong one. Boy, <laughs> that, was, that was a miss. What's that? That's like, a, that's that's like the theme close, song. That's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, let's do it again. Number one is... Parasite! 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 Parasite 3, the eye of the tiger. Yeah, exactly. Very good. We have some new recording equipment, and uh, we're going to have some fun. Anthony, man, look out. Okay. All right. Let's go. So Gina Reinhold, she has a top 10, which starts with Midsommar. At number nine, Under the Silver Lake. Number eight, Uncut Gems. Sandler's delivery of the line, I'm going to come, kills me. Number seven, (laughs) Knives Out. Six, The Lighthouse. Five, The Irishman. Four, In Fabric. Three, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Two, Little (coughs) Women. And at number one, Not Parasite, Pain and Glory. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Um, now the moment you've all been waiting for (laughs) or the moment you've all been dreading oh man we got to get like a tim allen on one of those i think that's what we really are missing well i'm definitely gonna get the prices right horn oh i gotta pull up this list too don't i no you don't do you why you're gonna sing it right yeah, but are you singing along? Or? I might sing along at some point. Maybe the third verse has some harmonies that the first two didn't have. Okay. Uh, let's think about song structure here. Because no, I, I, just, I'm because I like our audience, I will refrain from singing. <laughs> All right. Okay. Are you ready? This is Bill Ackerman's 40 favorite movies of 2019. Bill Ackerman being the uh, host of the great Supporting Characters podcast on the Now Playing Network. Great guy. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we begin. With 63 up, American Dharma, blood and flesh, the real life and gasoline death of Al Adamson. There's Climax and Colwell, the Cotton Club Encore. There's Crawl. Dark Waters, David Crosby, remember my name. Remember my name. Diane. The Father Shadow, 
The Golden Glove Hotel by the River in fabric. The Irish Man Coco di Coco da and Little Women. There's also. The Long Walk Marriage Story Maya Midnight Traveler Mike Wallace is here Once upon a time in Hollywood Overwhelmed the sky Pain and glory Parasite Pelican blood <laughs> the pool Portrait of a lady on fire Bang Ray and Liz Bang Recorder The Marion Stokes Project Bang Saint Maud Uh-huh Sybil <laughs> Sorry Angel The Souvenir Swallow The Vest of Night What Network <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bill, for submitting that list. Mike Wallace is here? He is. Okay. I sang it, so it must be true. <laughs> that's, that's how that works. Exactly. Anything I sing is true. Patrick Rapole is sitting in a chair. He's about to reveal his number two. So I got to be perfectly honest with you. I have spent this entire time we've been recording with my letterbox list um, open and I have been moving my number one and my number two back and forth. Uh-oh. Oh, I don't really. It's like playing I a video game. Love the the my number one and two picks so much. Me too. That it's really really hard for me to choose which one should be on top. Me too. Ultimately, I had to go with what I had more fun with for number one, um, which is not to say my number two is any lesser. In fact, it might be a greater film. Who can say? On any given day, I might prefer it. On any given Sunday. On any given Sunday. My number two is Oliver Stone's classic film about the fake NFL, Parasite. With a never better Al Pacino. That's not true. You're right. (laughs) Parasite is my number two. Bong Joon-ho. Never heard of it. It's hard to... I I feel like I've been talking about this movie all year. Like, I feel like I've said everything that needs to be said to... Because I've just been telling people... Well, I saw this. What are you about to? I saw a movie. Oh, it's this Korean movie. Yeah. You really got it. It's so fun. It's rod fun. It's crazy. You don't know what's gonna happen. Like I've just been like talking about this movie. This is just like one of those movies that is an absolute startling, complete package in a way that like I like Bon Joon Ho. Oh I yeah. Don't think even the movies that other people would call like unassailable masterpieces, like Memories of Murder or anything. There's none of his movies. I am a hundred percent on board with the way I am with Parasite. Um, I think it's definitely some of the most fun I had in the year. I definitely think it's one of the most surprising movies I had in the year. I think it has the best ensemble of the year. I think it has the most interesting screenplay of the year. I think it has one of the most memorable endings of the year. I think that has the best final shot of the year, probably. Um, It is such an interesting... Um, just complete, uh, fully considered film, uh, and I really, really like it. So what we didn't, I think, I don't know if we didn't add this list to the, uh, if we didn't add this list to the um, 2019 list doc, or we just 
remove the commentary. But we had a uh, we had a listener who sent in a list and said, "I don't know why people were so on about Parasite. It made no sense to me." That really, this, I missed that. that. Who he said, said that? this family. You forwarded the email to me, so it might not have been on the 2019 list. But oh, he really? basically he said I that, I that he said that it didn't make sense to him that a family all this capable would be poor. Um, to which I would say, oh, okay, That's, you're right. It might have been Duke. I can't remember. At any rate, to, anyway, something I clipped out to him, I would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Just because I'm a poor person who's dumb doesn't mean all poor people are dumb and incapable. In fact, right on. maybe the the distribution of wealth has nothing to do with capabilities whatsoever. Maybe, in fact, that was what the point of the movie was. Um, mm. That it is totally. Uh, not betraying. I don't know. Like I've talked about this movie forever. I feel like I feel like I I feel like I do with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's like, oh, I just want to point you to a podcast, but I don't have a podcast. <laughs> I've just been talking about this film with you know my partner and yeah, you, everyone, everyone who would listen. I've done yeah. it at work to people who aren't like in big movie people. And I and it's one of those movies that its appeal is so readily apparent. I don't have a hot take. I don't have like, and here's the way that you can see Parasite for what it really is. Like, no, it's it's very clearly <coughs> about what it is about. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's hard to even call it subtext. Uh, it's literally just the text of the movie. Um, it's just a wildly smart movie that is also a wildly good time. And it is a combination of elements that you rarely see in a single film. You usually have to settle for a couple of them and then be like, well... It can't deliver everything you want, um, but this movie kind of delivers everything you want. I uh, don't know why I put it at number two, to be honest. I know why I put it at number two, because I also feel very, very strongly about my number one movie. But What the hell could it be? Good Lord, I can't even think now. I don't you, know. You know what it is. I have no clue. You know what how I happening? feel about Escape Room. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. I also know what how you feel about my number two, and I'm not prepared to argue about it i'm not gonna argue either yeah please don't i don't like arguing no i'm just kidding i don't mind yes you do yeah you're right i guess i do no i don't um so i like like i was telling brad uh during one of our breaks i i don't have like a passionate defense other than i just felt genuine joy throughout the majority of little women Greta Gerwig's latest film. It just, it just, it filled me with delight. I felt at peace with everything for, you know, straight two hours straight. And I thought it was an interesting choice to portray, you know, this character with, with some doubt, you know, and like not like not being so sure of herself and sort of make it less about coming of age and sisterhood and more about just the individual striving to find her own voice isn't that what coming of age is most of the well, time? Yeah, it can yeah, it can be. But I think more in terms of the creative process too. Mm. You know, her finding her voice through writing mm. in a way that I think reflects what the author of Little Women went through, like her personal arc. So it's almost like this meta thing, meta experience. Well, yeah, definitely that's the idea. Yeah. Obviously with how it ends. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think I was just I was just moved. I was laughing. I was enjoying spending time with all these characters. Um, like I think what it ultimately conveys is is really something that I think you know we need 
in society in general too, is just like this idea of you don't necessarily have to choose. If you're an artistic, creative person, you don't have to choose between art and your life because your art is your life. It contains your life and your life can be art. And I think that, you know, she channels her own personal experiences in her life and with her sisters um, into something satisfying that she can be proud of in the end. And I, I found that really moving. I, I, I just, you know, adore Shirsha Ronan and, and certainly her collaboration with Greta Gerwig is wonderful to experience again in this world. I don't have a strong attachment to the book uh, that, and including the uh, 1994 version of this, the way a lot of people do. And a lot of people that do have critiqued like just the idea of not making this uh, a straightforward narrative that her choice is to sort of jump back and forth through time. Some people feel it does a disservice to um, the Amy character played wonderfully by Florence Pugh. Uh, so, I mean, it's clear that Greta Gerwig has a way with actors and, and, and she knows how to infuse her own spirit and compassion into this world. And I just found it like really warm and, and human and, and beautiful in a way that I just like, is one of those movies I'm like, I just want to watch this over and over again because of how good it makes me feel. Uh, so yeah, I just love all these people and I love the movie and that's, you know, it's good to have that experience once sure. in a while, you know? Yeah. And, my main thing was just, I couldn't follow it for the first 30 minutes Makes sense because of the time jumps and I didn't understand why anything was happening. And then also I just thought everything just, it's a movie where just everything kind of happens. It doesn't, yeah. I felt like. It felt like everything hinged on uh, Timothy Chalamet's performance, and I didn't find him very compelling. Um, he was good. He was like, like he's like one of the main. He's like one of the main motivators through the whole film, mm-hmm. and I just didn't find him that interesting. Uh, but you know, maybe if I watched it again, I'd feel different. Yeah, I, but also, you know, I talked about this a bit. I think maybe off mic, but like the things I like about Greta Gerwig can't apply to this. Like, she can't make a very personal observational movie about a time period that took place a hundred years before she was born. She can't do her modern dialogue in a movie like this. Like there's just True. a bunch of things. But there's that good get, dialogue. There's fine dialogue, but it's not nearly as good as Lady Bird or Francis Ha or Mistress America. Like I think all three of those movies are way, way, way more interesting in as far as dialogue goes than this. Yeah. Like yeah. for me, it was just like, I really, Greta Gerwig is like my favorite sort of working screenwriter right now and it's just like oh then she made a movie that played to none of her strengths hmm. um as a screenwriter at least yeah as that's what i felt but if i had had time to see one more film before we did this recording it would have been little women but alas i, I did not have that time so it's I okay seen it Do you, I, you I, are forgiving all right yeah all right, you're all good. right you don't have to march out of here okay well thank thank Unless, unless you've made a, made a decision to put Joker at number one, then you'd have to leave. Well, then then we'd have a whole other thing going on. Okay. But as it is, I think we're at number two. And remember what I was saying about uh, Masters with regards to Scorsese? Uh, I'll just say that again for Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. As has been referenced, we have a very special uh, episode of the Retro Club with all four hosts going into major detail on this, so I'm not going to go too deep. 
But I, I do want to just reiterate some of the some of the main reasons I love this film, and one is its complete immersion in time and place. Its ability Does to that well. put you in the late '60s Hollywood, even if, like me, you you weren't there, you don't really have a memory of what it was, but you have a feeling of maybe what it should be. And as Tarantino is so good at. Uh, it, it, it sucks you in and places you in that world without any doubts. And then it has, I think, some really important things to say about that period and about how the Manson murders are a symbol of uh, an end of innocence, the end uh, of an era, and through his uh, creativity and uh, imagination is able to find a different lesson in the murders than uh than history has found and finally just as a pure entertainment quentin tarantino never fails it is funny it is suspenseful it is moving it's filled with great performances it is uh i think tarantino's best movie in quite some time which which means it's for me it's right up there it's pretty good. I like it more now. Maybe on the third viewing, I'll bump it up even more, but I don't know. Still struggle a little bit with it. It's okay. Which is fine. I like struggling yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get a read on you. You can't, you can't take a strong position. No. It's bad. I don't, it's bad. I mean, I'm not, maybe I, I maybe bad is good. I don't know. Let's talk about Jonathan Anderson. Why so don't we? He sent in a top 10 list. Oh, he did? Jonathan Anderson says, number 10 is Knife Sound. Number 9 is The Lighthouse. Number 8 is Marriage Story. Number 7 is All My, my Name. Number 6 is Apollo 11. Number 5 is Uncut Jam. Number 4 is Earth Man. Number 3 is Under Silver Like Yeah. <laughs> so that's when I went, sort of went into white zombie mode for a second there. <laughs> yeah. Number 2 is Farewell. Number 1 is Motherfucking Parasite. Yeah. Um, Shocking. His number one was Parasite, and in case you couldn't hear me. And he couldn't see 1917 because he hasn't played Denver yet. He hasn't played oh. a lot of places yet. I feel like that was a movie that they thought was going to be a big uh, awards contender, and then they realized it wouldn't be, so they like postponed it. Yes. Uh, I regret not seeing Pain and Glory, Little Women, Dark Waters, Black Christmas. I don't know if Black Christmas would have made your list, Jonathan, but eh, you can regret it either way. Um, he's perfectly fine with having not seen The Joker. Good. Yep. Okay. So we have um, two more lists, and then I'll read something. All right. My list is from Melody Ferrello, and at number 10, she has Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number nine, Manos. Eight, High Life. Seven, Marriage Story. Six, The Lighthouse. Five, 63 Up. Yay, somebody oh, else saw it. Yeah. <laughs> Four, Pain and Glory. Three, Parasite. Two, Uncut Gems. And uh, prepare yourself, Patrick. At uh, number one, Her Smell. Don't leave. Oh, no, don't leave. What are you doing? Patrick. I'm okay. Okay, good. I'm glad you're okay. We got another list, Jim. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. It just happened. Shit. Okay, go ahead. I guess you can read it. Can I? Please. Colin Suter. He's the host of Christmas Movies Actually on the Now Playing Network. Great show. Great show. 
really great show. It's number 10 is Atlantics. It's number nine is Ad Astra. Number eight is I Lost My Body. Number seven is The Irishman. Number six is Marriage Story. It's number five is Knives Out. It's number four is Farewell. It's number three is Parasite. And number two is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's number one was Waves. Oh, Okay, last but not least, we have another tradition of Andrew James <laughs> leaving us an MP3 message featuring his list of favorite films of the year. Hey, did you know that Andrew James is the former host of the great Cinecast over on Row3.com? No, he's not paying me. Uh, both him and Kurt Halfyard record two episodes a year, so you know you might want to stay subscribed to hear all their thoughts about the year that was in their entirety. So go over there. Meanwhile, I want you to listen to this MB3 that Andrew sent us. Take it away, Andrew! Hey, Directors Club, this is Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast. Yeah, we're still kind of kicking around a little bit. Happy New Decade to Brad, Al, Jim, Patrick, the whole Directors Club family network. 2019, it's been a great year for films, and even though there's a handful of titles still that I'd like to see that could probably make this list, 1917 being near the top, um, these are the titles that stood out to me as my personal favorites of the year. So starting right away at number 10, we've got uh, a a film called Swallow that probably most people haven't heard of, but uh, check it out. Outside of the Almodovar movie that came out this year, this is the closest thing uh, that I can think of to an Almodovar film, and it's about a woman, a pregnant woman, who slowly becomes obsessed with swallowing uh, increasingly dangerous objects. Um, it's pretty intense, and, it, and it's gorgeous. Uh, the Woodstock documentary was fantastic. Uh, number nine. Uh, number eight is a movie called Loose, starring Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. Uh, number seven, Joker. I know that's a divisive title this year, but I really enjoyed it, and I think we'll see a Joaquin Phoenix uh, Oscar nomination, probably a win. Number six, One Cut of the Dead. Uh, you know when Penn and Teller do that, do the ball trick with the with the clear cups, so you can see exactly what they're doing, and it doesn't take away from the magic trick at all. In fact, it makes it even more interesting. This is the horror movie version of that. It's called One Cut of the Dead. I saw it on on Shutter. Check that out for sure. It's amazing. Parasite. It's probably on everybody's list this year, um, and mine is no exception. Looking at maybe a Best Picture win? For sure, the uh, Best Foreign Language Picture win. Um, Number four, Eddie Murphy's making a comeback. Dolomite Is My Name is the film. It's on Netflix. Everybody should check it out. It's really wonderful and fun and uplifting with a great message. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll see... Eddie Murphy doing a stand-up tour in 2020. I will be there. Uh, number three, The Beach Bum from Harmony Corinne. It's uh, Matthew McConaughey. What he's kind of doing, dazed and confused, kind of doing uh, Lebowski, kind of doing I don't know his own his own version of a, a rich stoner out there just doing whatever. It's it's great um, and really funny. Number two, uh, the man. The myth, the legend, uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've watched it three times already, and I can't. I'll watch it again tonight if I feel like it. It's it's wonderful. Number one, the uh, it's it's rare. I don't know if ever that I've had a documentary as my number one. Actually, I take that back. I had OJ Made in America as my number one a few few years ago. Um, but this year, 
the Apollo 11 documentary that I got to see in IMAX is absolutely stunning. I literally had my mouth open, I think, for the majority of that thing. I'm pretty well versed in the Apollo missions and, you know, astronomy and just space in general. And I thought that I'd pretty much seen and heard it all. I, the, all the footage in this stuff just blew me away. Some of it looked like a sci-fi movie from today. It was absolutely exceptional. Um, and I look forward to watching that again, too, in 4K. Lots of lots of things I didn't see that I that I really want to get to. That Almodovar movie is up there, too. I want to check that out. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's my list for now. Come come see me on the Roll 3 Cinecast later in the month. Uh, we'll probably do, be doing a much lengthier discussion about this list, and it might have changed by then. So, hey, again, happy new decade, happy new year. Uh, we'll keep listening if you guys keep on recording. So until next time, see everybody later. Cheers. Ha! Huh, what a list. Guys, that was a fantastic... Andrew, you've done it again. You won't believe number four. I know, right? <laughs> it was a shock. Oh, my gosh. Definitely Andrew, just wow. listen to that list. Yeah. Oh, Christ almighty. Guess what? What? It's time. Yeah. For our number one film. Oh, well, my number one's the same as Andrew's. So I don't do know. Do we have a drum roll sound? <laughs> no, it's not. I highly doubt it. It's time for number one. I am the sad drum. Okay. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> my number one film of the year is me tucking the tablecloth into my pants and walking to the bathroom. <laughs> wow. Um, my number one film of the year is The Lighthouse, of course. Robert Eggers. Oh, you're right. Robert Eggers, Dave Eggers. Which one is which? Robert Eggers. Robert Eggers. Dave Eggers is, is the writer. writer who's the author? Yeah. Okay. He did a heartbreaking work with Sarah Andrea. Oh, very good. Yeah. I think this is probably my favorite horror movie of the decade. Um, it's it def- better be because it's on your letterbox and you know what's what's on letterbox stays on letterbox well i'm I saying mean, it's true yeah, but it's, yeah you can't change that was it in ever. that was in i think it might be a best horror comedy ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> like i i there is something in me nowadays i feel like i don't respond to any hollywood comedies at all but when i see something like i don't know like killing of a sacred deer or something i'm just laughing my ass off the whole movie (laughs) and this is that similar sort of a thing i think that just sort of speaks to the world we live in where i'm just so absolutely just flat bottom pessimistic don't believe in any hope whatsoever that when i see a movie like this that is just that is just uh it is halfway like um a loaded sort of promethean trip through hell <laughs> and then halfway it is just like my bad summer job kind of comedy like it's almost adventureland think that's where you're going with that awesome but like, that's, that is like like you relate you relate to robert pattinson's character because you've had jobs you're like well i guess i gotta be the one that, <laughs> right oh, oh i'm the one who has to like it's hilarious i wasn't even supposed to be here today yeah exactly yep, the, yep. the abuse that is heaped upon him just gets funnier and funnier and funnier the more i relate to it um i think i it's it's a fascinating approach that robert eggers has uh as far as especially in this film like the witch is very classy you know the witch is like we're gonna rip some stuff off from kubrick we're gonna you know we're gonna have 
the struggle inside the family of the religious zealotry and obviously the modern audiences are going to relate with the daughter and so there's going to be some uh, sort of gendered uh, layer to the struggle inside that as the patriarch of the family drives everyone mad. Like, it is a movie that is respectable and people who don't like horror movies can see The Witch. Not you, but generally, (laughs) people who don't like horror movies can see The Witch and be like, ah, yes, that one is not just a horror movie. It's horror as art. And like, and I'm not trying to dismiss that movie because I think that movie is really great um, and I really love it, but... Seeing him cut loose in this film, but at the same time still do that really grounded, I'm going to look at official documents of the era and like take dialogue from uh, stories of the era and from, you know, uh, transcripts of diaries and stuff like that. Like the weird, super detailed, grounded uh, approach to material that is absolutely ludicrous um, and then shooting it the way he does. It's just like, it's an astounding combination uh, of elements. And I just have such an amazing time. And I definitely was like the only one in the theater who was laughing as much as I was. I think I think it took uh, some other people, I don't know, some other people might've just been viewing it as a straight ahead horror movie or whatever. But every time that seagull just fucking popped his head up, that first shot, of just like that close-up of the seagull on the doorstep just staring up at him like, what the fuck are you going to (laughs) do? I can fly, motherfucker. What do you think you could do to me? Like, yeah, it's so funny. And then, of course, adding in uh, Willem Dafoe's, probably my favorite Willem Dafoe performance ever. Um, I, I just, I loved, it's, I couldn't take my eyes off Willem Dafoe the whole movie. He is fucking Satan in this movie. He is Mephistopheles. It is like so clear that it's like, this isn't just a bad job. Like it is, this is specifically a situation designed to torment Robert Pattinson. And part of the torment is that he thinks that things are reasonable and okay. And then it turns back around. It's like, no, fuck you idiot. Like I is so funny. I laughed so hard. I had such a great time. It is so astounding looking. Um, you know, it was my best cinematography of the year. It had amazing uh, sound design. Oh, yeah. Um, that speech that Willem Dafoe gives about his lobster is absolutely insane. Uh, the There's like the one throwaway shot of like uh, of Willem Dafoe as Poseidon with like the lighthouse lights coming out of his eyes that has burned in my memory forever. Yeah. There's all the weird sexual repression and uh, just like sexual anxiety and, and and homosexual panic and stuff in the movie and this stuff with the mermaid and like interesting year for Robert Pattinson and sexual anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he is that the thing about Robert Pattinson, especially in this movie is it's easy to give a big it's easy to be the kind of actor who's compelling on screen, but you never play a normal dude. Mm-hmm. Like that was sort of the thing that Johnny Depp fell down is that it was just like, he was just these wild characters. And then every time he ever tried to play someone, it's like, what, what, what's happening? Like, it was just like, what the fuck is going on? You're terrible at this. And it's really easy to be big. And it's really easy to just do big choices and only be those big, um, but like Robert Pattinson and he has those moments in this movie, but also like, his quiet sort of resigned the beginning of the film, the way he just takes the abuse and like he wants, he has so much he wants to say, but he just can't express it all. Like he is as compelling to watch when he is small as when he plays really big. Um, 
And he is just this sort of live wire person who is just super present. And, you know, Good Time, I think, is maybe even an even better uh, sort of example of that because he is... See, because in... As an actor, when you're in a scene with someone, what you one of the primary things you're going to think about, I mean, there's a lot of different approaches to acting, but one of the chief ways you can think about it is, what do I want in the scene? What is What am I going for? What is my motivation? Is the cliche, the actor, the director, and Good Time is a movie where literally the entire movie is him with trying to get way more than he ever has any chance of getting and, tra- and like just desperately clinging at whatever he can squeeze out of any other human being around him and... Um, this movie, he also has just that super reactive nature that makes everything Willem Dafoe say 700 times funnier. Um, I think the ending is amazing. Uh, again, the photography plays into that a whole lot. I think widescreen is a sham and any widescreen movie uh, that you like, you're wrong for liking it. I think... Oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going big choices. 2020 year. <laughs> I don't out. no widescreen movies, including Parasite, which is terrible because there's just like there's a chunk of screen here and a chunk of screen here, but the characters are in the oh. center. Like, get out of here. I was gonna say for, uh, Academy ratio, but that's not really what Lighthouse is. Lighthouse Ooh. is <laughs> weird, fucking forgotten ratio from the era of silent film. But I love, I love the framing. I love Boxed what it does. In, yeah, I love what it does. Yeah, for the claustrophobia, for that like limited environment. I love how it has to emphasize depth and how you have to use the, he has to use the natural lighting to sort of create the depth and the blocking of the scenes. Like just everything about this movie makes me so happy. And I think like, if I'm trying to think like quote unquote objectively, which I don't actually believe anyone can objectively judge art. No, but like, if I'm trying to think about like how well achieved every individual aspect is, I'd probably say like, Oh yes. Parasite is the, the higher achievement in cinema or whatever. But for me, the lighthouse is the most fun I've had just forever in movies. And I adore it. And I can't wait to watch it a hundred more times. Why'd you spill your beans, Patrick? Why'd you spill your beans? Also, the first time I saw it, I have, I have hearing uh, issues. And the first time I saw it at the music box, I could not make out a lot of the dialogue because there's a storm going on. They have the accents and it's, weird you know phrasing and stuff like that so the second time i watched it i got an assisted listening device and i was able to like clearly hear everything and all the ambiguity that came from like i don't really like there's a confession that he has but i forget what it was and like is it what's his name again there's like questions of identity that i walked away the first time i saw it and i was like fundamentally confused about what the it helps to watch it the second time second time i saw it i was like Oh, turns out I wasn't just giving it the benefit of the doubt. It's actually still great, even though I know what's happening this time, um, as opposed to just being totally baffling. Lighthouse uh, is my favorite movie of 2019. Though not one I would uh, recommend to uh, your parents or anyone's parents necessarily. Oh, really? Yeah. Crap. Someone's asking me what, like, what? My what's, mom just texted me, what movie do you recommend? What from movie does Patrick recommend from yeah. 2019? I would probably direct them towards Parasite. Okay. Speaking of, do you want to just say what our number one film of 2019 is together? And three, two, one. Dumbo! Cats. (laughs) Hey, Parasite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) See how I, I left all that space for you to talk about it? Yeah, thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate it. 
I watched this again two nights ago, and I'm like, you know what? This per- movie's perfect. It's just, it's just perfect. I, I don't know. I can't find anything wrong to say about Parasite because it's perfect. And it speaks to, to the times that we're living in and uh, probably will continue to do so. And uh, I think Bong Joon-ho is uh, a masterful director. I, I mean, like, yeah, like you were saying, like a lot of his films do have imperfections sprinkled throughout. But I think they're all really interesting and all yeah. really great in different Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. You know, and you have a dark comedy, you have sociological horror, you have family drama, you, you have, have whatever tragedy. the fuck Oakjaw is. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. a little bit, little bit of everything. But this is like, you know, everything kind of meshed into one satisfying, cohesive narrative with a story that you just, you grab onto and you just, you don't let up for the whole thing. You just like, yeah, can't wait to see how this is going to play out. And we've talked about the, the incredible ensemble here. Everybody deserves all the recognition in the world. They built that house from the ground up. Did they really? Yeah. This is such a beautiful house. It's a beautiful house. It's such a good set. Like I can remember it in my mind. Yeah. That's how well constructed and well, you know, directed this film is. It's yeah. The architecture of everything is perfect. Oh, I find that kind of stuff in film really fascinating when like spaces that the film takes place in occupy a place in your mind that actual spaces you've been into. Like, I know it's weird when you think about like your childhood home and you think about where the living room and the kitchen, everything is. And then when you think about, for me, it's like the hotel shootout in no country for old men. Like I kind of feel that same space in that same way where I just know where everything is. Yeah. I I like, I know where the toilet is in the basement of this movie. Yeah, exactly. Plus it's just damn entertaining, you know? Like you laugh and you know, like there's this whole kind of like heist element halfway through where they're all trying to figure out ways to get into the house and get, you know, everybody's jobs. It's kind of beautifully edited. Um, It's just, it's, it says a lot about society and class of course, but in the end it just became one of the most satisfying experiences I've had in quite a while. It is a perfect movie. Brad, what says you? It says the same thing. I, uh, a friend of mine just kind of got the base basic story of it and was deciding whether to see it. And I was like, wow, it sounds, sounds a lot like shoplifters. And I'm like, well, it starts well, off like that a little, little bit. It's yeah. a little like shoplifters for just a bit, just a unti- bit. until it's nothing like shoplifters. Yeah. And that's really the genius of this movie is that it's a journey. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we start following this family and because everyone is, because they've cast it so well, because everyone is so engaged, you're, you're interested. And then when they very slowly go about inserting themselves into these uh, rich people's homes, it's such a pleasure. You're like, can they, can they really get all of them in there? And how are they going to make these mechanisms work? But I think one trap it could have fell into, but it did not, is uh, it didn't make uh, the wealthy family unsympathetic. We definitely have uh, issues being made about wealth and about inequality, and that's the theme of the movie. But the characters themselves uh, were characters that we could also be interested in and view as three-dimensional sure. human beings. I think, yeah, it's very easy to make the rich people, oh, he's the rich asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He's the guy you're supposed to hate. Go hate him. Yeah, and he I hates think, the smell and I think, and everything. I think the thing throughout Parasite is just the very detailed observation of the way that um, uh, a boss can take advantage of their employees, the way that like the subtle ways, things yeah. start off, like everything is like, oh yeah, we're all basically family here. And then it's like, 
we're not equals. Right. We, we talk as if we're equal. Oh, we're just two men in a car driving, but it's like, we are not equals. And, and that's what drives him to do what he does in the end. And right. A lot of people, not a lot of people, some people would question that decision that he makes that I've heard anyway. And I go, no, it makes sense to me. Oh, completely. And, and even the, the smell thing of it is yeah. not, re- you, you don't sense that there's malice behind it. It's certainly inappropriate mm-hmm. and it's not cool to talk like that to anybody, but you get the sense that they're just more, um, just don't get it that, that you can't say that. Right. And, and then it builds, and then it builds into its thr- thriller elements. And then we find out, uh, well, we don't it's, even need so to, to get yeah. to, to give it away that uh, a whole other thing is happening. Um, I th- I agree, Patrick, with uh, a couple of your comments, particularly the one stop shopping bit about it. That this movie does everything, mm-hmm. and also that this is far and away Bong Joon Ho's greatest film. It just for sure. I mean, I've been enjoying his work, but didn't think he was going to reach this level of filmmaking. So it, it's so exciting that he has, and this is uh, one of the be- best film of the year, one of the best of the decade. This, this one's incredible. So, yes. So I've, I work for, I work a job where I have, I make a lot in like a lot of my income is tips. And that means that as opposed to getting paycheck every two weeks or whatever, I have a certain amount of money that I get every day I work and I was working six days a week for most of this year and I was making more than I had ever made in the past. And I suddenly had uh, income that was more disposable than it ever had been in the past. And I was feeling like, and I was feeling like, okay, like I'm, Oh, I'm okay. I'm middle class. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely okay. Uh, so I saw I'm not. I'm not at all. I but what I'm saying you're okay-ish. is okay-ish. Let me let me finish. <laughs> so what I'm saying is um then a branch uh during a thunderstorm a branch uh, got torn off a tree and smashed the trunk of my partner's car. And we were looking at we were dealing with the insurance company who were jerking us around and were not going to pay us what it was worth. And we were dealing with a body shop who were, they were just trying to get paid. So they were telling us to do stuff that maybe, and we were trying to look like, all right, if we can't actually, this is a car that my partner needs to work. And we're like, all right, so if we have to get a new car, we had this other sudden money problem happen right around the same time. And we were like working out where it's like, all right, well, I've been saving up for the past year and a half to get a new computer and I guess you can have that. <laughs> like, and then I was like, I was like looking at everything and be like, and I guess we could eat. Le-. And we were like trying to figure out the money. And, and then I saw this movie two days later. Um, and to me, one of the most interesting things about this movie is how quickly the family, um, how quickly everyone settles into the idea of, well, I mean, I'm entitled to this wealth. Like, sure. Screw these rich people <laughs> and this fucking crazy house and all of this stuff they have. Like, I it's absolutely this. ridiculous. But like, yeah. but I should be that. And there is this idea of like, you can really, especially in today's society when um, there are luxury items that aren't really considered luxury items like iPhones and stuff like that, where you can like trick yourself into thinking like, oh yeah, I'm middle class. And it's like, okay, if a sudden medical problem showed up, like, would you actually be able to pay with it? You know, are you actually, there's like, there are people, when you talk about rich people, we're not talking about people who have a nice car. We're talking about 
people who can absorb trauma a flood, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this movie does a really good job not just making the rich people the antagonists, though of course they are absolutely should not have that much wealth and it is disgusting that they do, but it's also about how you can become your own antagonist and how the lower class will turn on each other because they, instead of rethinking the way that wealth is distributed fundamentally, they all are just like, well, the problem is I don't have it. Yeah. Um, and I think that the way that this plot in its not didactic uh, sort of preachy way at all illustrates all of that is absolutely astounding. Poisonous envy sometimes we have. But I remember um, in, a, in, a, in a Nirvana song, Kurt Cobain actually wrote the line, I am my own parasite. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that 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 happens like you know you become something sometimes you don't intend to become and clearly these people don't necessarily want to it sort of just happens to them like they just sort of see the environment that they're in and they go oh yes this i should be a part of this world right it's you know they feel entitled almost to like oh they're out of town let's party and this is our environment too this is ours you know without thinking of the consequences that could occur um, and then we find out even more. There's another layer to it that's really important to the story. Uh, yeah, this is is this is a remarkable piece of work. It's insane. It's it in, is. It's it's yeah. Per, uh, yeah, perfect is a sort of a dumb, useless. It is uninteresting term when describing art, but like Sorry, it really, it. it really. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> saying like that is how I feel as well. Is just like it is the way to describe how it felt sitting in the theater and hit it, seeing him yeah. hit every single mark and every little thing. And my, I just, I've seen enough movies now and I'm sure a lot of cinephiles feel this way. You'll watch a movie and you'll go, okay, it's this kind of movie. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. And to see him so consistently surprise you and so consistently not fall into any trap that a similar approach might've taken, like to never be able to second guess it, but for everything to feel like it had to happen that way. Even to the very last scene. Yeah. 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 Because the very last thing you think, Something might be happening, mm-hmm. but then if you give it a little thought, something the opposite might be happening. Right. And yep. so it, it, you're on your toes all the way to the end. Good job, Bong Joon-ho. Really, good job. You did it. Yay! We did it. 2019 is over. Movies of 2019. It's over. The episode is over. Now we have an entire new decade of movies to start. Yep. We sure do. I don't know. I don't know what's coming out in 2020. I don't. Uh, uh, Some good stuff. Underwater. That's the main yeah. one. I'm going to see Underwater and then I'm going to call it quits on 2020. <laughs> okay. So we know what your top 10 list of uh, 2020 yeah. is going to be. Yeah. Underwater 10 times. <laughs> yeah. Brad, uh, where can we find you on the internet? And um, is there anything else we needed to bring up at the end of the uh, episode here? I don't think so. I think we've been pretty comprehensive. Okay. I'm happy. Uh, you could find me with my co-host Al on the Directors Club. Yeah, what's coming uh, up? And uh, the very next thing after this episode is going to be Ken Loach. All right. With uh, Rebecca Martin from Fresh Perspective. And then we're going to be joined by Peter Richards for the third part of our massive Ingmar Bergman project where we uh, cover movies like scenes from a marriage and Fanny and Alexander. Can't wait for that. Thanks for all your hard work, Brad. My pleasure. Thank you. Arthur two on the rocks, you know, the classics, (laughs) the classic. Very good. Very good. 
Um, Patrick, how are you doing? I don't have a computer that can record podcasts. So, Tracks of the Damned, in the state it was in 2019. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you'll be hearing more from us soon enough. Yeah. Come February. We'll see what holds in store for the future of the Directors Club podcast and the Now Playing Network. I, and also, okay. Patrick, you have a letterbox. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Patrick Ripple. It's true. Letterbox.com slash Patrick Ripple. It's, it's a good place to go. I don't know. At this point, I just do it. I mean, I, I always, I don't think it's of much value, but other than to me, I like to go back and remember like, oh, that's that movie. Because yeah. I, I when you watch enough movies, you forget what movies you watched. Mm-hmm. So when you write about every movie you see, you're able to go back and be like, oh, okay, yes, that is the main thing I took away from I'm that. getting to the age, though, where I go back, I've seen this already? What? Yeah. what the what? I so you had so we have an ongoing like best of 2019 list and then at a certain point we were like oh let's put this in private so that we don't I'll, spoil I'll our top 10 now. list the day before you did that I went on to like look up any movies that I might want to catch up on and there were all these movies that I was like huh starfish was really high up there and you were like oh, that's I right. don't remember that, anything about starfish and I'm like yeah you must have really like transit and you're like I can't remember a thing about <laughs> transit it's true but I do I remember I liked them so they're they're on but there. But imagine if you wrote a couple sentences. You're right. That's a good point. That's that's why I that's, that's why I do letterbox. I don't. Yeah. I am not asking anyone to look at my letterbox, but yeah, it's good for me at least. But no, that that's that's a that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And you can find me over at now playing gym in the letterboxed world. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm on Twitter. Probably not. And uh, there's other places you can go if you're curious. But I highly recommend you go to nowplaynetwork.net for this show and many others, many other great podcasts. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you for all your hard work, you hardworking podcasters out there for um, creating consistently interesting content. And I'm forever grateful for the two men sitting in this room today and uh, the many, many others out there who are kind enough to subscribe to this show. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you in 2020. Far thee well. Bye-bye. Far thee well. (laughs) Good outro. It's not the energy reeling, nor the lines in your face, nor the clouds on the sea.